Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me, as always, is Cameron. I saw me a wolf. Mm. Oh. It had mm. big old mouth. I recognize your telltale Ohio accent there. That's right. We're in the middle of Ohio. Where the tumbleweeds drift across the lanes, and coyotes got one big leg, one little leg, one big tooth, one little tooth, both eyeballs too big, hat hair, <laughs> children imagining it. Coyotes with hat hair is a pretty good Whoa, idea. Yeehaw! Wow! Oh no, that's Mario. That's forbidden in these parts. <laughs> Mama Mia. <laughs> it, it's a me, a cowpoke. That that is how the updated version of this would go, I think. You would have to it would be <laughs> the neighborhood would turn into like Fortnite. It would yeah, it would be Fortnite slash uh like Space Jam 2 shit. Yeah. It would yep. be like, hey, do you know all the things we own? Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh well, man. We could have the Power Rangers. Obliterating the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> what are we talking about? Uh, today we are talking about 1996's The Regulators. Stephen King's worst book, The Regulators. <laughs> now, now, now. It's Richard Bachman's worst book. I don't know if actually, I don't know if it is. That's a good point. I don't know yeah. if it's actually Richard Bachman's worst book. <laughs> it's, you know, it's pretty, I think Rage is still a worse book. Mm-hmm. Um but at least was sh- it was shorter. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, I, in terms of endurance, uh, this book sucks. This mm-hmm. book is terrible. And I know that in your heart of hearts, young Michael Lutz, mm-hmm. you, you love it. <laughs> yeah. You love how much it sucks. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> and I'll never understand. <laughs> uh, but you know what? We got breaking news. Mm-hmm. We just watched a clip from a mere few days ago. Of Stephen King on the Today Show. Good morning, America. I got it wrong. Good morning, America. Are they different? I think so. Hey, do you know that the Today Show and the Tonight Show were invented as a pair? Oh, like (laughs) a pair of Mirror Universe novels? Yeah, it's just like that. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm eagerly awaiting Stephen King's appearance on the Tonight Show. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, he was on there and we both, we both just watched it. It's Michael mm-hmm. Strahan talking to Stephen King for like, uh, four solid minutes. Number one, Carrie's 50th anniversary is next year. Mm-hmm. Number two, they spend most of the interview talking about Stephen King legends, mm-hmm. like lore of Stephen King, pulling Carrie out of the trash can, Tabitha helping all that stuff. 
And the other thing we noticed is that they're treating him like an old man. Mm-hmm. I they feel it feels weird that they're like treating him like he is like not all there and capable. Some implicit Good Morning America ageism going on here. I think. Well, did you see that in kind of like the questions they were asking, or? I just like the tone. It's the tone yeah. that you talk to, like you know, it's yeah. this like weird phenomenon where you, like people start talking to the elderly like they talk to children. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? Uh, tell us about the old days, Steve, <laughs> Mister King. Yeah, I don't know. Felt it, weird. It's like, well, the Dallas police. <laughs> Wouldn't that be better? Yeah. Wouldn't that be better if, 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 if King was like, well, you know, the Dallas police. Well, you know, Michael, uh, the <laughs> Dallas police. <laughs> they let JFK die. They let they it's the people who are responsible are the real people who are responsible are the ones who didn't know what to do about it. The buffoons, the befuddlers. I mean, I, I, I'm not doing the right voice, but it, I'm giving Stephen King the. um the affects of Harlan Ellison here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The goons. <laughs> Make silver cross my palm. Uh oh man. What a great guy. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, not as a person, <laughs> but in terms of like a me- like a media icon. Uh-huh. Harlan Ellison's a fucking wild do- guy. Interpersonally, as a as a human being, maybe not as great. Mm-hmm. But uh I don't think anyone else could uh Talk shit <laughs> as hard as Harlan Ellison. No. R.I.P. Uh, um, but we're talking about the regulators. Yeah. Wherein Stephen King is like, I think, low-key trying to talk shit about himself. Maybe. Or possibly his audience. I don't know. It gets kind of muddy. <laughs> I don't know. It, this is the muddiest book. <laughs> like, it, it's just, look, I, I'm if you haven't read it, dear audience member. Mm-hmm. Don't, <laughs> don't do it. Uh, but we, but what we do have to talk about, because uh, I see what you're saying. There's a lot of like retread. It feels like maybe the first backfire of like true actual backfire of the retread method that we've seen in 30 years of books at this point. Mm-hmm. By which I mean it's the first. Let's look at the past five, six books that I've read, or, you know, written mm-hmm. and combined a bunch of the ideas together. It's the first one that just hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. All the other kind of retread books, they might feel a little weird because they do have some retreads or and even some of the same characters, which we also get here. But they've at least worked as novels. This thing, like, it, it's not a novel. No. It's barely. a one thing that occurs that's stretched over four, 400 pages, 500 pages, 400 pages. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's not even a particularly interesting thing. Mm-hmm. It's just people getting killed. Yeah. It could have been, I think, probably a shortish novella. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. It could have been, yeah, yes, absolutely. And I think it would have worked fine as like the um the la- final third novella in a short story collection. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, like yeah. a good like uh because you can see a thread between this and what is it? Not the Milkman Patrol, but what? What were? Those oh yeah, the Milkman stories? stories. Yeah, were the Milkman's like? Is that what those are called? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like you can see if you combine four of those together, it would look kind of like this. Hmm. Um. And and stapled it to a bunch of other stories, but Michael, why is this? This is a a, a novel that is 
paired with Desperation. Mm-hmm. They come out on the same day. Mm-hmm. But this is a Richard Bachman book. Yeah. Why? Uh, so, <laughs> I'm going to read from a publisher's It's also week- called The Regulators, in case yes. we forgot to say that. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm just going to read from a publisher's weekly piece on this. Uh, this is, you know, from, from the time of, from 1996. Don't ask Stephen King to explain this fall's publishing phenomenon, the simultaneous publication on September 24th of his Desperation from Viking and of The Regulators from Dutton, a funhouse mirror flip of Desperation's plot and characters by his pseudonym Richard Bachman. King can't explain it. He can only point to The Voice. The Voice here is a capital V. I did it because The Voice told me to do it, King tells Publishers Weekly. Not because I thought it would sell well, or because people would like it, or because critics would say, oh wow, or even what a bogus marketing trick. The Voice doesn't talk very much, so when it does, you have to listen. And when mega-selling King listens to The Voice Muse, publishing parent Penguin USA must too. King says he asked his publisher for the dual publication. They didn't want to do it, because his books are, quote, twins. They have to be born on the same day. He also forbid putting, quote, Stephen King writing as Richard Bachman on the regulators because, quote, you might as well just say written by Stephen King. And the result is what we talked about last time, $2 million joint marketing venture from Dutton and Viking. For for reference, Dutton is uh, uh, the imprint that is owned by the house that is traditionally publishing Bachman. So that's why it's split here. Um, uh, I was... Oh, I didn't, uh, uh, I like copied this out, but anyway, he ends up talking about, uh, like the voice, right? Uh, and he just says that he heard the voice say, you should do one as King and one as Bachman. And it's, uh, the anecdote that I referenced last time that it's like a repertory company in a theater doing two different plays. And that's all he says on like what struck him about this idea, why it exists like this in that interview. Now, in another interview, uh, with a guy named Joseph uh, Masseri, uh, where he talks about basically a whole bunch of stuff. This is actually a pretty interesting interview. I found a, a mirror of it on an old Angel Fire website. And it's actually, I think the interview is being given while King is working on the set at the Shining miniseries. Uh, the interviewer, uh, Masseri, says, uh, I've heard the regulators resulted from a conversation you had with Sam Peckinpah. Having read the novel, I can understand how some people can make those assumptions. What is the story behind the book and your meeting with Sam? King says, The truth is, I had a screenplay long before I met Sam, which was towards the end of his life. We talked at the UN Plaza, and Kirby McCauley was there because we had set up the meeting. Sam was looking for a picture to make I had or for a picture to make, and I had the screenplay that was called The Shotgunners, which I had for a long time and went back to after something like five years. It was one of those feverish things I'd written about in about a week. I really like it, but there was not interest in it. Sam read it, liked it a lot, and suggested some things for the script that were really interesting. I thought that I could go back and do a second draft. Unfortunately, Sam died about three months later, and I never worked on the script. Later on, I had this other idea, and I started to see a way that a number of different things could be put together. That's sometimes what I think writing a novel is all about. It's this synthesis of these ideas where you see how everything links together, and you say to yourself, yeah, I can do that. Uh, so, do you find that helpful, Cameron? No. The <laughs> shotgunners? Uh-huh. Steve, what are you doing? 
Oh, yeah, it, it is interesting to me that the I guess the Stephen King industrial complex for film had collapsed with uh, independent cinema, um, you know, or the 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 East Coast independent cinema in the eighties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's it. That's all you get out of that. <laughs> kind of right. Like I why that doesn't. That's not a reason for writing this book. That's just an explanation of how you got here. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's not a reason for it. And it's so fast. I mean, because this book in and of What's itself. The Shotgunner's all about the Power Rangers? Yeah, that's what I mean, right? It's like it, this right. book is so singularly weird just in terms of content. Like we already told you, do not read it. And I, I as someone who likes this book, I would also say probably don't read it. Uh, but if there is a reason that I like it. It is because there is a kind of uh, condensed, pure strain weirdness at the core of this thing that I find endlessly fascinating, <laughs> where it is simultaneously a uh, weird, uh, like hyper violent, uh, like uh, uh, revisionist Western being mixed with some sort of bizarre commentary about 1980s children's cartoons being mixed with the Twilight Zone. And so my question is like, what was like when you showed this to Sam Peckinpah, were the Power Rangers there? Yeah, Cameron. <laughs> I just I don't. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not good. No. Um, and. I don't know, because there's this whole setup at the beginning, right? It's like, this is a trunk novel that was found in the works, uh, you know, in the belongings of Richard Bachman, who died in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Why did Richard Bachman invent the culture of the early 90s? In the, You know what I mean? Like, even the setup is silly. Like, the setup is not... Because you, one can imagine you could use that setup as a way of uh, writing a throwback novel. Mm -hmm. Because I, I disagree with you. I don't think this is about the children's toy culture of the 80s at all. I think it's about the children's uh, toy culture of the 90s very explicitly. Mm -hmm. um, and like the reemergence of the revisionist Western in the 90s, too. Like both of these things are happening at one time. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it doesn't have a... The, the Bachman setup can give Steve an opportunity to write a book that is a particular kind of throwback to a different kind of book he doesn't write anymore. Mm -hmm. And he does not even open that door to, to go and do that. He uses that and then throws it out the window in order to uh, write what feels like a very 90s uh, Steve book that's very much about 90s culture uh, up into the fact of like autism existing, right? Mm -hmm. which uh, is is... Uh, yet another rip from the headlines thing for the mid nineties. Mm -hmm. um, so, well, you see Cameron, the, the yeah. editor's note at the beginning says that the cultural references have been updated. Yeah. The cultural references sure were changed. Um, I think the only one of those that I could tell was that Ethan Hawke thing that's mentioned at the beginning. Yeah. No, I mean, that that's the thing, right? Is that that note says that the cultural references are updated and then there are just like straight up like impossibilities for Bachman to have referenced if he died in 1983 or whenever it was that the you know character was supposed to have died. Yeah, well, and also it's like it also doesn't bother updating because it's like 95% of the cultural references to this are television westerns from the 70s. <laughs> also no, that. They didn't bother updating those, right? So yeah. Um, because that's like critical to the thing. So it, uh, I don't know. Like, 
I think the whole thing is a fucking mess. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the way you know it is a mess. <laughs> um, let's see. This is maybe five pages into my volume. I've got the original. I've got a you know good old fashioned first edition regulators. Um, is that it opens with a map. It's like that editor's note. Hey, uh-huh. this is from Richard Bachman's stuff. Blah, blah, blah. Map. Map doesn't fucking matter. Even a little bit. Does not matter that you have this map. Is not helpful in any way. No, not particularly. I mean, totally unnecessary. Unless you are really dedicated to holding the geography of this one street in your head perfectly. Which you don't have to be. No, you don't. Is there any other... When did you read this for the first time? Uh, So I guess this might be uh, critical for understanding why I like it in the way that I do. Um, I probably read it maybe during my first big Stephen King rush, or like not at the very beginning, but kind of like some ways in. Uh, Definitely I'd like started in and like read, you know, it and the shining and kind of all the big ones, the stand and whatnot. Um, But I actually read this one before I read desperation. Um, And maybe that impacts some of why it like sticks with me in the way that it does, because I was totally ignorant of the way that those two novels connect. So uh, I just read this one and I was like, that was weird. Like I came out of it thinking this was a really weird Richard Bachman novel. Um, because I was familiar enough with kind of the Bachman style and I ended up, uh, I think not even going to desperation, even though I could tell that they were linked in some way because of like how the covers link up. If you've never seen these in the original hardcover, they have, uh, dust jackets that when you set them side by side, it makes one picture. Um, and, uh, I ended up. Uh, reading Regulators, taking some time off, and then reading Desperation, and then being really confused because I recognized all of the characters from the Regulators showing up in Desperation in completely different contexts. Uh, And then ultimately, I don't know, I just ended up liking the idea of the Regulators more than I liked Desperation. (laughs) Uh, that's wild to me. Yeah. I, I did. I also read them as a pair. Uh, and, and yeah, somewhere in the run. Um, but, uh, but I read the regulators first mm-hmm. because it was shorter. <laughs> and, you know, and I made, I was like, all right, let's, let's see. I know these are related in some ways because I've seen, you know, the box set and the, the cover stuff that you were talking about. Um, so, so I read it first and, uh, yeah, even at the time when I was like 12 or something. I was like, what is this shit? You know what I mean? It was like maybe one I I had while rereading it right for the show, I had the distinct feeling of being like in the middle being like, oh, yeah, this is like the first time that I realized Stephen King might be wasting my time sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Like when we have people give us in first when Audrey gives us long form firsthand narration of events and then we read multiple chapters of her journal where it says the same information mm-hmm. and not even like a different perspective on it or like, a, you know, we're closer to the time. The same stuff, the same events are narrated by the same person a separate time. Yep. I, I have this distinct memory of being like, uh oh, 
maybe not all of Steve's books are good. <laughs> maybe some of them are not as good as other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I read Desperation, and I think that mostly wiped out. If I had a good feeling about any part of the regulators, I think reading Desperation wiped that out because I was like, all right, here's where all the good demon stuff is. You know what I mean? That All that fun, salacious stuff when you're 12. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, which this book is has none of. It has none of the cool stuff, <laughs> and only the stuff that sucks. <laughs> so, but but yes, yeah, so that's where yeah, I write. But similar like you, right? This was not a first Stephen King book for me. It was not a last Stephen King book for me. It's just like in that big run of random stuff. Mm-hmm. Probably around needful things. I bet. Yeah, that seems about right to me as well. Uh, yeah, the. I mean, we we can talk, I guess, a bit more about the specifics of like the textual strategies here and how they do or do not work. Uh, Maybe we should start with then the summary. Sure. It's yours. Five sentence summary is where off the dome without any preparation, one of us summarizes the events of the novels in five sentences or sometimes fewer than five sentences. Uh, It's my turn this time. Here is The Regulators by Stephen King. Sentence one. An idyllic Ohio suburban street is thrown into chaos as some knockoff Power Rangers, open parentheses, in real world big size, close parentheses, come running down the street in their cars and shoot a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. Period. Everyone continues to be hounded by a shape-changing mechanism that changes the street and continues to call these knockoff Power Rangers, comma, who continue to kill people, period. We learn that this is because of a small autistic boy who has been taken over by Tack, the creature from the previous book, Desperation. Period. The events of the novel Desperation are not canonical to the world of the regulators because these are parallel worlds, comma, or something like that, comma, uh, that inform each other. Period. The people continue to be killed by his mind projections and the evilness of Tack, who is eventually killed by shooting him in the head. Period. <laughs> Five sentences. There you go. <laughs> yeah. That's nope. what happens. Mm-hmm. Now, you might say, hey, don't you think Steve could have accomplished that in about 40 pages? Yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely think this could be a really tight, interesting 40 pages. Notwithstanding all the stuff that uh, is uh, so 90s Steve about it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. but but yeah, that is that is the occurrence. It is, uh, in fact, by the way, on the Good Morning America interview that we referenced earlier, Michael Strahan says that Stephen King has a multiverse. Oh, well, there we go. Yeah, he uses is... the word multiverse. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is this is really where that starts becoming explicit. So neat. <laughs> yeah. What do you think the deal is here? Because I, I think we alluded to some of this in the desperation episode, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this book is 
connected to, but is not the same as Desperation. A lot of the same characters show up in like a different alternate reality form. But there's also some like narrative. It, it's almost like, uh, what if Desperation was intervened in earlier, right? So instead mm-hmm. of mine, get if remember back to last, last episode, if you, if you did or didn't listen to it, that that book gets going because. They break into an old mine. These miners who are doing open pit mining do a dynamite blast. They break into an old mine. Uh, down at the bottom of that mine, there is in prison slash trapped slash uh, something an entity called Tack, who's like a demon from beyond our world, you know, for lack of a better summary. And uh, he, it, I don't know, it gets out. And starts like colonizing the town of desperation, and that's what gets that novel going. This book, it's like inciting incident in the you know way back backstory of it that we learn kind of mid book is that right after that happened, a family drove by with a uh, this little kid called Seth who was the youngest of the family, and Seth uh, is autistic and also has the shining. Mm-hmm. And very much as part of Stephen King's like magically, you know, inflected people who we we might think of as abnormal, but really they are magical, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it, we're getting a rerun of the Green Model, uh, the Green Mile, a little bit here, as well as a bunch of other books. So uh, uh, instead of Tack colonizing the town, Tack lures this family with this like very psychically sensitive child with them. Seth runs down in the mine, gets colonized by Tack. Tack leaves. Mm-hmm. Is that is that kind of the do you read that as like a timeline split essentially or is this just the same pieces kind of in a different um, organization? It's more fundamental than that. Uh, I, I I don't think uh, so. King calls the novels twins. At some point, people start talking about the novels as mirror images of one another, and uh, that logic of mirroring of um, inversion or uh, transposition I think is helpful for thinking through some of this stuff because the mine that they get tack out of in this book is different in desperation they unlock tax chamber in rattlesnake pit or rattlesnake number two in this book it's in rattlesnake number one so it's the, like there are two mines in desperation and he oh. comes out of or it comes out of two different mines in both books oh, okay. um Right. And sort of importantly, when they uh, uh, describe the place where Tack comes out of in this book, in the previous book, uh, in Desperation, it's like, you know, a whole open chamber. It's like some sort of weird, like prehistoric uh, demon cathedral with like a well of worlds in the center. And Tack comes out and Tack is like a a smoke that takes the form of a snake in the air and all this stuff Uh, here. The uh, bottom of the shaft and it's not um this is you were talking about in the last uh, episode there's all this uh uh talk and desperation expended on different types of mining mm-hmm. in the previous book it was a drift shaft right mm-hmm. in this one it's just a straight up like uh regular shaft so this is why it's important that's why all that information was in the previous book is so you could notice like okay yes this is a different structure of mine that they're in now got it uh, so they get down to the uh, bottom and it's not a chamber. It's like a, a rock face with a crack in it. And there's something beyond the crack, some sort of chamber beyond the crack. Uh, but that's how Tack gets out. Is he like and Tack also takes a different form. Tack is a um, 
uh, lights. Yeah, right. Like uh, uh, sparks from a campfire in the air rather than the smoke from a campfire as in the previous book. Mm. Uh, so there is like it, it's not just like an intervention. And um, part of this also is evidenced in the fact that like the Carver family is here. But in the previous book, the kids were Ellie and David or no, no, no. The kids were um, David and Pi, Kirsten. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the parents were Ralph and Ellen. Here, the Carver family is also living in Wentworth, Ohio, just as they were in the previous book, except now the parents are David and Pi, and the kids are Ralph and Ellen. Yeah, all the things are shifted around. I was I was really thinking just in terms of like, you know, alternate universe structure, what's the unifying thing? But as you're mm-hmm. pointing out, there there is really not a unifying thing other than the cast of characters itself. Mm-hmm. Because I was thinking, I don't know why I had it in my head, but th- I thought maybe the crack, like the, like it would be the same chamber, you know, mm-hmm. like on the other side of that crack, just the crack had not in this alternate universe, the crack is not fully. But but you're right, that's not said anywhere. I'm do- I'm doing work there, mm-hmm. um, that that is is definitely unwarranted. <laughs> Well, speaking of unwarranted work, I do have a way of like fitting these together, uh, but we can save that for the big finale uh, after Mm. we've discussed some of the other stuff. (laughs) Uh, So as we said, all the characters are here except for the ones who aren't, and they are all uniformly uh, made way more boring. And there's, I don't know, roughly 80 of them. (laughs) And they're, they're truly their bodies. Yeah, it like just doesn't. And to the point where it starts like, you know, because uh, we get a little bit of not the mist necessarily, but, you know, Stephen King loves uh, people trapped in a place pinging off of one another. We're going to see this a bunch more times over the next many books, but he likes to go to this. You know, what happens when people are kind of up against the wall? And uh, there's one point later where it's like. There starts to be like uh, racial animus, you know. Uh-huh. This, this white woman starts to use the N word, and I was like, "Wait a minute, hold on! Wait, I I'd forgotten that like anyone, I I'd forgotten the physical makeup of any of these human beings because they're they are literally just they're just names, right? Like I can't tell you a character trait of anyone in this entire book. Oh, y- o- <laughs> other than the drunk guy, uh huh, and Kali and Trajan. Yeah, so you missed the part uh, where the Josephsons are introduced at the beginning of the novel, and it's like said by the narrative voice that they're the one black family on the neighborhood, and they're just the way that people in Ohio yes. like their black people, yes. which no, is to I say remind them that. of the Cosbys. Right. I remembered that when we got there, but in the intervening 200 pages, right, it was just like, because it is only names of people and being blown apart or running around. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like there's no, there's no development of these characters. And so it was when she, when she like starts using the N word, I was like, hold on, who in this book is black? I was like, <laughs> and, and then I was like, who is still alive? Like beyond anything about them. I was like, I need to actually take account at this point who has been killed and who is alive to determine like, how many people are at play? There's a point where it's around the same time where they are split up into two different houses mm-hmm. and they, you know, the cast of characters is kind of all talking to one another and they're making parallel decisions and stuff and it's cutting back and forth. And I, I you know, it's almost like I, I wish that instead of that map at the beginning, it had been like a guess who, you know, uh, like right. grid of people with just like iconic smiley faces, right? Of like different face shapes so that I could distinguish them because you're right. Like a hundred percent, they're just bodies. They all get one sentence at the beginning of the, the book to describe them, right? You know, 
know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, exactly as you said about the, you know, the, the one black family and how they're positioned. The one guy is, is drunk all the time. One guy is Stephen King, even more Stephen <laughs> King yeah. than Stephen King has ever been before in a book. Um, what, uh, one woman is Seth's caretaker. That's Audrey. That's the one character I can remember. Um, one's a cop. You know what I mean? Like they just they get so little internal stuff, even compared to Desperation, where they mm-hmm. didn't get a lot of internal stuff. Um, that that it's very. I think it's a very confusing book to read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's. I mean, there are so many characters, and the only ones who have anything approaching like depth end up being Audrey and uh, Johnny Marinville, and a little bit like Kali in Trajan, uh, but he's in a sort of weird spot because he he is a character who is positioned as someone who might be able to, like, I don't know, get us out of this mess, and then, you know, tragically he gets killed in an accident, like a misunderstanding. So the other thing that's, like, being folded in here, uh, top-level, uh, uh, like, conceptual stuff, is that this is a extended Twilight Zone ripoff slash uh, homage, you might say, between um, two two specific stories I'm thinking of. I don't remember the title of the other one, but it's very famous. It's the kid who, uh, like, sends people to the cornfield. Is that based on a Matheson story? So many of these were. Maybe. I don't know. I don't remember. That. I've seen, I think, most of the Twilight Zone. I don't remember that episode. That's very funny, though. Yeah, I'm trying to think. It's, um, oh, it's All a good could- life. If if you mention that, the only thing I can think of is the human giant corn maze skit where it's revealed <laughs> that uh, Rob Hubel's character like asks his girlfriends to go out back and get something for him, and they all get lost in a massive corn maze behind his house. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a- there's a reverse shot of him looking down, and I think it's Rob Hubel just goes, corn maze. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, so the it's called a it's a good life. Um, this is one of the most famous episodes of the Twilight Zone to the you know effect that it was one of the segments that was adapted for the Twilight Zone movie in the eighties. Mm. Um, and it is about a uh little boy with uh extreme like psychic powers that can like rewrite rewrite reality, and he like brings his cartoon character friends to life, and like. All the adults around him have to placate him and do all the things that he wants or else he sends them to, I think, the cornfield is what they call it. Uh, it's a story by Jerome Bixby, uh, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the story. Actually, the really nice thing about the story is the way it describes uh, people being sent to the cornfield is like it's implied that he just like teleports them to like an underground chamber where they like smother to death or something and become mummies. Um, you just like whoop, bamps them into the underground. Damn. Yeah. Anyway. uh, Oh, yeah. And it's a I'm just double checking here. The opening narration. It takes place in Ohio. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Oh, yeah. And everyone in the uh, town has to has to be has to pretend to be happy all the time because the little boy doesn't like it when people have bad emotions. Uh, Anyhow. uh, So it's partly that it's partly uh, the monsters are due on Maple Street, uh, which is a story about a single street there's here's all the people who live on the street uh one day the power goes out and all the electronics start stop working and they don't know they like they're cut off essentially from everyone else in the town and they expect that it's aliens who are going to invade and start killing everyone uh but 
In fact, wouldn't you know it, it is their paranoia about the aliens invading that make them start killing each other. And then at the end, it like sort of pulls back and they're the aliens just watching. And they're like, yeah, we don't have to do anything. We just like take away their electricity and they just take take care of the rest for us. So both of those things get smashed together here, along with all the stuff from the previous book, plus uh, this weird pseudo commentary on the Power Rangers and Westerns. Can I can I read something to you? Sure. This is the closing narration. You know, the the um, uh, what's uh, Rod Serling narration mm-hmm. from the that episode. It's a good life you just talked about. Mm hmm. Because, uh, lo and behold, in that episode, they don't do jack shit about this psychic kid killing everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it just ends with trying to appease him. Okay, you ready? No comment here. No comment at all. <laughs> we only wanted to introduce you to one of our own, our very special citizens, little Anthony Fremont, age six, who lives in a village called Peaksville, in a place that used to be Ohio. And if by some strange chance you should run across him, you had best think only good thoughts. Anything less than that is handled at your own risk. Because if you do meet Anthony, you can be sure of one thing. You have entered the Twilight Zone. The the Twilight Zone has the bravery to say, we've just given you a horrible little kid. The end. <laughs> the regulators... Ultimately, cowardly in its construction, because it believes it has something to say about the world. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. The key difference here. Meaning uh, it can't just give us an, uh, a horrible little kid. It can't just give us like a horrible little kid. People got to be redeemed and shit. Yeah. And like, oh, it's not a horrible little kid. It's a horrible little demon living inside a good kid. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, right? This is one of the another one of the mirror image kind of conceits. Uh, Desperation is about a special little boy versus extra dimensional evil. And in this book, special little boy and extra dimensional evil have been conflated into one character. Right. Uh, Right. And and I I mean, maybe is this where we should talk about um, Seth? Uh, let's run through just like all of the other characters just to like knock them out and then we can hit Seth because this is another interesting fact. Seth is basically the one key character who does not appear in any form in desperation. Yeah. So he might, he might've been driving by. (laughs) Well, he might not even have existed because the circumstances of these characters are so different. Um, so uh, just to like just say their names because again very few of them matter. Um, I'm just gonna talk about them. Who who lives on Poplar Street here in Wentworth, Ohio, which is where the Carver family is from in Desperation and still from here. Well, there's Collie and Trajan, who is a police officer who has been laid off because the uh, uh, uh he like he found some corruption or something and uh they fabricated graft charges about him so he's recently left the force and he's kind of on edge about that uh he becomes kind of a hero until he gets shot but i'll talk about how that happens later 
Uh, there's also Mary and Peter Jackson. Uh, they are uh, sort of, they're kind of the same characters that they were in Desperation, which is to say like comfortable upper middle class academics, except now they live in Ohio instead of upstate New York. Uh, Mary's having an affair with a guy named Gene Martin, who is the minister that David sees in Desperation, except here he's a really sexy accountant. Uh, she gets shot. She's like one of the first people who gets shot. Peter eventually gets like mind eaten by Tack. Uh, and that's what happens to them. There is uh, Kirsten Carver, also known as Pi. Uh, she was a little girl in desperation. She was David's younger sister. Uh, here she is the wife of the character named David. Uh, she gets a like exploded cast iron pot or pan shoved into her face and it's horrifying she dies uh david the special little boy from the previous novel uh he is now a uh sort of flabby like middle-aged dad who is washing his car in the driveway and he's wearing a set of swim trunks that are too small and this is constantly observed that he is an overweight man in tiny swim trunks and he's also starting to get sunburned and he looks ridiculous when the first person gets shot on the street, he says, people need more Jesus in their lives, and then he gets shotgunned in the gut. He's gone. Bye. Uh, then there's Ralph and Ellen. They're kids. Uh, Ralph is a huge brat. Ellen is not as much of a brat. Uh, but, I don't know, they're just kids. They're just there. No nothing really happens to them, except they become kind of catatonic later. Tom Billingsley. He is the town veterinarian here in Wentworth, Ohio, just like he was back in Desperation, except now he's not even a recovering alcoholic. He's just a veterinarian. Uh, there is uh, Gary and Marielle Soderson. These are some weird deep cut characters. In Desperation, uh, Marielle was Peter's sister, who they were seeing on the West Coast and who left some weed in their car. Uh, and here, they are like this stock 90s uh the set of like stock 90s character which is uh like the yuppie power couple um where the wife is really mean and the guy is kind of a dipshit he's a drunk and she's uh mean to everyone uh she gets shot and then he gets eaten by a, a weird uh gila monster kind of thing uh then there is uh, a girl named Debbie Ross, who is not a character from Desperation, but is like implicitly the daughter of one of the characters from Desperation. She she dies. There are the Gellers, who are, again, not characters from Desperation. It's like a mom and her daughter. Uh, Kim is the mom. Susie is the daughter. Uh, the father of the family who is mentioned, Frank Geller, he's one of the guys who works on the mine in Desperation, but he's not here in the novel because he's out at work. So he's not on the, he's not in the neighborhood when everything kicks off. Then there's the Reed family. Uh, it's Cammie Reed, the mother, and then her two twin sons, Jim and David. Jim Reed is, they're, they're both teenagers. Jim Reed in Desperation was the chief of police who uh, uh, got mind controlled by the Cantaws and then Kali and Trajan killed him. In this book, he ends up being this teenager who, uh, because they're like, there's a bit in sort of the midpoint when everyone's like running around through each other's backyards trying to figure out what's going on. He gets scared and he accidentally shoots in Trajan thinking that he's uh, one of the attackers. And then he gets so upset that he then shoots himself. So that's some more mirror image irony for you, right? And Trajan killed. did you know? Yeah. Tech made him do it. Yeah. Ooh. 
Ooh. Uh, so then there's them. Uh, there, then the, uh, two, well, okay. One other character, Carrie Ripton. Mm -hmm. Um, he is the paper boy. He is the first person who gets shot, uh, when the vans pull up and the Power Rangers start marauding. Uh, in desperation, he was the foreman at uh, the China Pit, and he was the first person who got possessed by Tack. Uh, Brad and Belinda Josephson, they are the uh, one uh, black family in the neighborhood, as already mentioned. And in uh, desperation, Belinda was never mentioned, but Brad was like the second in command at the China Pit. And so he was the second person who uh, Tack possessed. But nothing really happens to the Josephsons. Uh, they're mainly just supporting characters through this whole thing and they make it through. Then there is Johnny Marinville, who is a formerly famous uh, journalist slash author who had a big like celebrity blow up at some point in the 70s or 80s got really scared uh walked back all of his addiction stuff like went into recovery and then uh instead of continuing to be famous instead ran away to suburban ohio where he started writing children's books and that's what he does now uh Oh, Steve Ames, who is a guy driving a truck who stops at the local convenience store. He's like an old hippie. Cynthia Smith, uh, who is the clerk at the convenience store. Uh, importantly, I don't think that this is... Uh, uh, I don't think Rose Matter is canon to this because no, Cynthia yeah, yeah, is... Yeah. This yeah. is not a Cynthia Smith who went through the events of Rose Matter. Right, and it's not mentioned that Cynthia uh, in Rose Matter and in Desperation has um, part of her ear is missing because of a domestic violence incident, and that's not brought up at all here. So, Yeah, if it isn't part of her ear missing because what's-his-face smashed her into the wall? Uh, no, 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 I think uh, oh, her... Before that? I think it is like that is the reason she's at the um, uh, shelter in Rose Matter is that the previous boyfriend like uh, uh, did something to her ear. Um, gotcha. So anyway, they're there. They're just characters to be there. They don't do much. Uh, and then there's Audrey Weiler, who was the woman who was secretly working for Tack in Desperation. Here she is uh, the prisoner of Tack who has possessed her. Uh, nephew Seth Garen, uh, and basically her life is a total nightmare where she's being like psychically controlled to beat herself up and dress like a sexy cartoon character and like live in a house that is just constantly accumulating filth. Uh, and then there's Seth. So let's talk about him. And Herb. Well, okay, yeah, Herb, uh, Audrey's husband, who was very noble and then got killed because Tack couldn't uh, possess him in a way that let Tack sleep with Audrey. Right. Uh, because there's this whole um, Tack is inside of Seth and wants to have sex, right? Because Tack is just like, in this novel in particular, it's just pure id, right? Mm -hmm. Like. And so it wants to, it, it murders, right? It it uh, torments, uh, it tortures, it does all these things, and it wants to, as, you know, uh, maybe have sex is too light, right? It wants to rape. Like, that's yeah. part of its, like, impetus. That, that's part of how this is a Bachman novel, right? Mm -hmm. Is that uh, Tack is unchanged and id-like in a way um, in this book in a way that Tack kind of isn't like that in the <laughs> other right. like Tack is doing something in Desperation but it is different than what it's doing here right like 
Mm-hmm. It, it, uh, tack in desperation is not trying to make desperation in it, like the town of desperation into its like little u- tack utopia, right? Like mm-hmm. that's not the desire. This is the end game of tack in this book is like, what if I could get enough energy from killing all these people? There's a little bit of insomnia in here, but what if I could get enough energy from all these people to like fully sever it from the world mm-hmm. uh, and create my own little, you know, um, the shining utopia? Uh, that is full of murder and torment and rape, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so a little old Seth Garen, uh, like I said earlier, is possessed by Tack uh, way before the events of the novel. Um, or not way before, but like a, a few months. A year uh, but, or something, a year and a half. Yeah, yeah. Oh, was it? Is it that far? Yeah, because uh, part of Audrey's journals we get are from 1995, and oh, the right, and right. the novel itself definitely takes place in 96. 96 and also, yeah. just to establish a baseline here, in terms of like present tense action, this book lasts an hour and a half. Like from oh, the yeah, maybe right yeah. from like the first shotgun blast to the end when they escape tack like that's how much time elapses. So, yeah, uh, but yeah, so Seth and his family, the Garen family are driving through the desert. They get lured into this um, uh, pit. Notably, uh, Seth is autistic. Seth is autistic in the way that it's the worst 90s imaginary of what that mm-hmm. means, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and so he's nonverbal. He um, uh, is likened constantly to like, you know, big quotation marks around this, but people who are locked in, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, completely nonverbal, non-interactive, uh, put in, in an, uh, you know, the asylum setting uh, and abandoned to it, right? You know, that it's this kind of worst case imaginary of what autism is in a... Uh, culture that is deeply afraid of it, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so this is not attached to the vast majority of autistic people. This is like a me- this is Stephen King's representation of a media representation that is like produced by tabloids. This has mm-hmm. no actual connection, I would say, to actually autistic people in the world. Um, and and because of that, it feels like a lot of the characters that Stephen King writes in this mode. Uh, you know, Tom Cullen's the one we bring up all the time, but it, it's in the Tom Cullen mode, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, here's my, you know, not my, but, you know, Stephen King going, here's how I think this thing might be. And then just writing that as a kind of media stereotype character. And so he's overwhelmingly nonverbal and they drive by this thing and he starts speaking, you know, in like full. So they do anything he wants. And it is because young Seth Garen, who's what, like eight or something, seven, eight years old. Yeah, he's like he would have been like seven when this part of the story happens. Um, He uh, basically what happens is that like, you know, Tack, this demon that is down in this mine, reaches out and basically is like, hey, I know I know what you're up to, Seth Garen. You know what I mean? I'm a psychic entity, too. And the implication that we get here is that Stephen King has transferred all of his like 70s ideas about tk and psychic abilities or whatever that kind of are clustered together under what he calls the shining at that point that whole cluster of ideas is just neatly lifted out of the 70s and plopped into seth garen and autism here yeah so you know we we get a clean line in the stephen king canon between um danny and the shining through um uh, I, I just mentioned him, Tom Cullen, right? You mm-hmm. know, this idea that one is, by being 
I don't know, less like a quote-unquote normal person, you are less guarded to like the psychic realities of the world, right? Mm -hmm. That's the Tom Cullen deal. Um, but so that those ideas that are kind of in the 70s and 80s for him neatly transposed to um, into autism in Seth Garen in a way that just sucks, right? Like, yep. you know, it, it, it is every, every bad place this could go, it goes, um, including, you know, Steve is writing an eight-year-old, but he's also writing someone who has like a different experience of the world, and those two things get blended together. But then he also has to be a child with a heart of gold. So, like, that happens, too. Mm -hmm. So Seth Garen becomes this, like, load-bearing, I don't know, entity that uh, that Stephen King is trying to write in, like, seven different ways. And every part of it just doesn't work. Uh, it, 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 in some points, is embarrassing um, mm -hmm. in, in terms of just, like, what, why? Why are we doing this? Uh, when you could just have, you could straight, there's, you could write this exact thing every part about it with just straight up Danny from the shining. Yeah. Like, like what if Danny actually was overtaken by the overlook? Cause that's what the plot is. Yes. Right. Right. Like, right. Tack lures him in by being like, Hey Seth, I know you like Westerns. Yeah. Like, I know you like, like you don't hear this. Right. But it's the, it's the implicit thing. Cause Seth starts yeah. saying like, I want to see Haas. I want to see Joe, like yeah. the characters from Bonanza. So it's like, apparently Tack is like, Hey, if you come down and see me, it's also a bit Pennywise, right? Like yes. come down and see me like the Ponderosa's down here. We're going to have so much fun. Yeah, a hundred percent. Right, you know, it's talking to him in in different voices, right? Yeah, which is, which is the overlook, right? And so you, it's so much cleaner and coherent just to have it be like, what if The Shining went the other way, right? Like, what what if uh, The Shining had no interest in the rest of the family, and and the overlook were or not The Shining, but the overlook, and the overlook was just interested in leaving, mm -hmm. right? Just write that, which is effectively what happens here, <laughs> but it's so tied up in all this other shit. It's like, I just, I'm sorry, I'm, now I'm like sort of fascinated by the idea, like, what if the Overlook wanted to leave? Like, I'm tired of being a hotel. It's time for me to go on the road now. Well, I I, I mean, not to spoil uh, anything about Dr. Sleep, but that is actually kind of the, the, the plot of Dr. <laughs> Sleep is, uh, what if the Overlook, what if the Overlook could leave with you? Right. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that's called that novel is about alcoholism. That novel is about um, these kind of questions of trauma. Right. Like, you know, you can see where that goes. But that there's a little bit of like the the sci fi fantasy adaptive plot there. Right. right. Like what what if the, the, the overlook was a kind of trap and by blowing up the overlook, you let a lot of things go. Um, mm -hmm. And that's cool. It were, I think I think Dr. Sleep's a pretty the parts that are actually about the shining in Dr. Sleep is very cool. The parts that are not about <laughs> the shining in Dr. Sleep are very bad. <laughs> um, but, you know, overall, I think that novel is at least interesting. But yeah, so that's all to say. Right. Seth Garen is that Tack gets into Seth Garen and becomes a kind of uh, latent force within him, but is slowly but surely figuring out how to take Seth Garen over and kind of puppet him and use his psychic powers Eventually, it uses his psychic powers to kill his family, the Garens, who, who mm -hmm. maybe are figuring out something's up with him. It's a little unclear. And then ends up with Audrey and Herb Weiler, and then uh, begins to, to vampirically sap the energy of Herb Weiler. And there's this final kind of culminating moment where Herb... Um, where Tack wants to like possess Herb and rape Audrey, and Herb is able to prevent that from happening. 
um, but then ultimately decides to to shoot himself. Um, e- either that or Tack makes him shoot himself so that Tack like eat his death energy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a little, it's unclear and ambiguous in a in a in an interesting way. Herb Weiler and Audrey Weiler and Seth at the core of this book is perhaps the the only interesting thing in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it is kind of cool to to think about like I, it's cool. It's also just the omen, right? Like, yeah. Like it's not. What if there's an evil little kid who's like making bad things happen? That's cool. That's interesting. A little vampire kid. That's interesting. Wrapped up in a plot about how difficult autistic children is. That is perhaps not as interesting and uh, full of stereotypes, right? Yeah, that's one of the other sort of bad outputs then of the way that this is treating autism is that on one level, and this was clear to me even when I was 12 or 13 or whatever in reading this, uh, is that the whole thing ends up feeling a bit like a kind of um, metaphor for what it is like to care for a child with autism because there's so much in Audrey's like journals and letters that early on especially that's about uh, how hard it is to understand his changing moods and how he can really throw fits and uh, how mean he can be sometimes but also how sweet and I know that the sweet him is the true him and, and the mean him is this other thing and it just it gets you to an uneasy place where yeah like the, the story is kind of like oh Caring for an autistic child is a bit like having a demon in your house, which yeah, is yeah. I think you could linearly read this book as explicitly metaphorizing that, and yeah. like number one, taking care of any child is hard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, two, taking care of a child who needs uh, accommodations in some kind of way and needs you to be more flexible with that can also be hard, right? Like I would never undermine the the difficulty of the reality of it, but. Um, the, the, what the book does is not face the, the reality of like taking care of a kid, right. In any capacity, what it does is it takes an episode of, you know, a a 30 minute chunk of Sally, Jesse, Raphael Uh from the mid nineties. And then, uh, writes that into the reality of, of all of this autistic child. Right. And so it, it absolutely reads as a daytime talk show, national Enquirer esque Rip from the headlines, which is Steve's maneuver, right? Like this is in the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, moral panic about autism that is then <laughs> written into The Shining and beyond. Um, right. And uh, it, it it just doesn't work. No part of it works. And mm-hmm. and I think I'm with you in terms of like there are parts of this book that are very fun to read um, because they're like silly and no other human being would ever do this. <laughs> like I just no one else would write some of the shit that's in this book and some of it really works the stuff that you were talking about where the the twin shoots Kalia Trajan and all that stuff mm-hmm. um, that's that's awesome like that that whole section of the book I think is the the best part in terms of like just things that are happening um but it all you can't no matter what happens we are inevitably going to return to everything going on with Seth and everything going on with Seth and Audrey uh, I think it's just I. It's difficult. Like I don't. Even, mm-hmm. I don't know if I even have words for it. It just. It's bad. It's difficult. I think it actively probably had a negative effect. Negative effect on the world. Mm-hmm. You know. I. I think that if we're looking at Bachman books and we look at Rage and we decide not to reprint that because it has damaging ideas about guns and gun violence. Um. I think that is patently ridiculous compared to this in the sense of like. I don't think that rage, even though there are these cases where people have read rage and, and committed gun violence, I don't think there's a r- linear relationship between those two things. 
I think the like morally or culturally deleterious work that's going on in this novel is infinitely worse than whatever Rage is doing, which is obviously working in satire. It's obviously this kind of like, you know, shithead teenager, dirtbag teen novel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, But that is also very common for the time period it comes out. I don't think it's good. I think it's perfectly fine that Stephen King chooses not to reprint it. I think in terms of impact in the world and of pushing people's thoughts and um, reiterating a dominant cultural narrative that was harmful to many people in the 90s, which is our generation, right? Like, yeah. if you're autistic and you came up in the 90s, this is part of the narrative that you grew up in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the cultural narrative. I think that the way that th- this novel thinks this is is just as bad. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's true, right? Uh, like growing up in the mid '90s, like this is what autism was, right. right? Not the psychic part, but like the way that Seth is figured as like difficult, hard to talk to, uh, uh, sort of capricious, uh, unsalvageable like, as a person. Yes, I mean, just really and truly, that's the bluntness of it. He might be good and nice, and sometimes, and that's when the good Seth is there, but fundamentally socially and as a human being seth does not have a trajectory that will make him part of culture right well and that's so that's a a part of the thing right part of the imaginary of this book is um uh seth at his core is a good person but that means that like within seth as an embodied human being uh, there is a kind of like psychic projection of himself that represents his kind of interior thoughts that is quote unquote, just like anyone else, meaning right. Right. does not like in any way kind of like, uh, meaningfully have autism, right? Uh, like there is like, uh, uh, the exterior expression of Seth as a person. And then there's like, uh, you know, Seth in his like weird little mind palace that he's built where he is just like a very clever little boy uh, who is trying to do his best to fight tack. Um, and so like the, in order to make that salvageable Seth, right, it, it essentially has to remove uh, autism from the equation entirely. Yeah. Yeah, 100 percent. He cannot the the puzzle pieces do not fit to make him a full person and also autistic in this 90s imaginary right right um and these things have like you know there are lots of things that in our world that have changed for the worst or have um uh uh you know not changed at all right mm-hmm. we've remarked on many of those things that you can read a book from the 70s and 80s and be like holy shit we're being sold the same cultural you know backward narrative whatever um you know i think part of the reason and i don't get fired up maybe i do get fired up on this, on this show about stuff i don't f- often feel as strongly about things in books as i do about this right which definitely impacts the way that that i'm taking the whole book and the reason for that is like i have this is my 10th year of teaching college students and i've taught a lot of autistic students right that's just a, they're yeah. part of the population human population you have too i'm certain um And Mm -hmm. I have seen a radical change in the way that um, autistic students have been treated as like full participants in human society um, in a way that even 10 years ago was less the case. Um, And I think that is good. And it like hurts me emotionally to remember, right, that this was the dominant cultural narrative at one one time, right, that Mm -hmm. just this kind of antithesis to human thriving. Um, and to think about my students, right? And you know, think mm-hmm. about people I know uh, who 
had to go through this system. Um, you know, whenever that stuff comes up in Steve's books, I think I have the same kind of thing, right? And we've talked about it in various different scenarios, but this is just really a place where I you know, really reading the book in 2023 it is a hump that is impossible to get over for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So I mean, that's that. Uh, I guess we can talk about then how it ends because how it ends is also arguably quite fucked up. <laughs> well, let's 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 walk through the thing. Let's walk okay. through the actual like plotty plot of the book. Um, okay. Because we keep mentioning we're an hour in. Yeah. We've mentioned that the Power Rangers show up and kill people. We have not explained any of what that means. <laughs> and also, why the fuck's it called the regulators? <laughs> so, so this is this is why I love we, the novel, my, right? I get my 40-minute <laughs> dissertation on, like, my beliefs and thoughts about the 90s culture of, uh, you know, anti-autistic sentiment. We haven't talked about a single fucking thing in the book. Apologies, yeah. dear listener. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, all that stuff aside, uh, the thing that makes this book, like, so central to just like my thinking uh in terms of how weird it is this is a book it starts and it starts like a twilight zone episode right where you have this narrator who's like this is poplar street in wentworth ohio blah 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 blah. here are all the people wow it's the it's the uh you know high roof of summer all this shit going back Um, to the needful things intro kind of deal that we talked about there yes uh and uh just up the street, there's this van that's idling, and the van is getting ready to pull onto the street, and everything's going to go to hell, so let's watch. So these vans start coming down Poplar Street out of nowhere one summer afternoon, and they're kind of, uh, I mean, people at first just recognize them as vans, and then as they watch them or, like, study them, they realize there's other weird things about them. Like, they don't look like any known maker model. Uh, the wheels don't seem to be turning right. The windscreens are all bizarre. One of them has like a radar dish spinning around on the top. And, uh, the pe- the, the people who are in these vans just, uh, you know, they roll down the windows and they just start, uh, shooting with shotguns. They're just like blowing the hell out of things. They shoot the paper boy. They shoot a dog. They shoot some other people. Uh, but... When uh, Johnny Myronville, I think, is the first person to, like, look into the van and really see who's doing the shooting, it is completely bizarre because it's, like, a dude in some sort of, like, space uniform and the dude doesn't appear to be human. He's got, like, green skin and he looks like some sort of alien. And then, like, uh, oh, oh no, he's not wearing a space uniform. He's wearing a Confederate uniform. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he's like wearing a Confederate soldier uniform. And then there's like, basically like more and more of these vans keep showing up. And there are some of them that look like there's a, uh, so they, we end up discovering that these, uh, vans are drawn from a show called Motocops 2200. Um, which is, uh, uh, a children's Saturday morning cartoon show that has been invented to sell toys to kids, specifically these vans. And there's actually like early on the sort of chapter, like the interstitial chapters we get. The structure here is like chapter from the story, a weird little like epistolary thing, like a news article about Seth's uh, family being shot in, in a mysterious accident. Right. Uh, that provides a little bit of backstory and then another chapter. And then it's like an ad about, or like a, a write-up of Moto cops as a show and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So Motocops was made to sell toys, specifically these things called power wagons, which are like these vans that the action figures sit inside. And like the the main villain of Motocops is this guy named No Face, who's that he's constantly described as looking like a space Nazi. And he has no face. It's just shadow. Uh, and he's got like a sexy vampire assistant or something. So the show is obviously this uh, weird fusion of you. You mentioned Power Rangers, but I think there's also like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is in here a little bit. And I think a lot of He-Man yeah. uh, in terms of like the, the space science fantasy thing that's going on. Uh, so the vans that are coming down the street and all the shooters are in. Uh, they are from motocops, but then also there are these, they're some of sometimes they're wearing Confederate uniforms and sometimes like John Wayne is in there, except he's not called John Wayne. He's called John Payne. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Roy, Rory Calhoun is there, but he's still just Rory Calhoun. Uh, and then characters from Bonanza. So all these like weird Western figures are also in these vans shooting people. And this is what I love, right? Just the absolute balls out weirdness of what the hell is going on here and everyone having to deal with that. And then it turns out it is because these are all things that are like Seth's interests. Uh, and he plays with his action figures in the backyard constantly. And uh, Tack is somehow like taking how he plays with his action figures and then projecting that outward into how he is playing with with the neighborhood. Uh, and so throughout the book, while everyone's hiding out in their houses, uh, the vans are coming through like every 15 minutes or something as Tack needs to take time to recharge. Uh, and people are running between houses and then taking cover or trying to do things and then taking cover. Also, meanwhile, outside of the neighborhood, uh, everything else has disappeared. It started to turn into like this bizarre cartoon desert with like coyotes that have the wrong proportions and buzzards as well. And uh, the street ends up being reformatted into looking like the Old West. And it actually is described as uh, turning into how the main street of desperation looked in the 1850s based on uh, like Seth's like memories of the stories that he heard when his family visited desperation. Oh, is it that or I thought it was the town from the regulators from the movie? No, it is. It oh. is the it is the town of desperation. And so the other thing that Seth watches, uh, in addition to motocops, is this movie called The Regulators that is is like a uh, fictitious Western uh, that we get some like writing on in, in the interstitial chapters that is renowned for being like hyper violent. And this is also the one where uh, the, one of the lead actors is named as John Payne, but all the other actors in it are sort of recognizable. And so if you if you kind of know what Stephen King is up to at this point, you can be like, oh, I see what's happening. Because the other when Tack does a blame the mono thing where he'll like mm -hmm. speak in various celebrity voices. Yeah, um, it's, it's annoying. Yeah. And so uh, uh Blaine loves to speak in the voice of John Wayne, and so does Tack, except every time this distinctive Western actor's voice is mentioned, he is not called John Wayne, it's John Payne. And so there's, you know, again, like some something, this world is not quite the regular world. Uh, that or Stephen not King. even Steve could get the rights cleared on that one. <laughs> Maybe. But yeah, so that's why it's called The Regulators, and that's why I like it, because I love this image of a bunch of cowboys and Power Rangers in vans just, like, obliterating a suburban Ohio street. 
Yeah, I think it sucks. I think every part, every part that you just outlined is good. I think is like um, actively bad. Uh, <laughs> Say more. Uh, I, I, it is the two things of literary production to me, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, th- this is the part of like Neil Gaiman I find annoying, right? Mm-hmm. That I, like, I'm not into, which is this just like, what if we crammed in stuff that we're familiar with and like made it zany? Mm-hmm. And I, I think you like this because you really like the chaos of like watching culture. It seems like because we've talked about this many times before, uh-huh. in various different capacities, right? Like, I think you truly like the chaos of like making things that are from different genre categories or kind of cultural positions, like high, low culture, or whatever, like making them making them kiss, basically, I think uh-huh. I think you like. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I just I. I think what I don't like about it, about this in in a broader sense, is that it invites a mismeasure of expectation. Mm. And because what I enjoy about genre work is like watching the cultural rules of genre stuff happen Mm -hmm. and then shift and change, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I like to to see, um, I'm trying to think of a good example of this, right? We're like... Um, you know, Jupiter Ascending, right? Okay. That, that, mm-hmm. that is a movie that has some of this stuff, right? Like, what if, what if we made a bunch of different weird stuff kiss, you uh-huh. know, and, and what would happen? Um, and I really like that because it has a fundamental mastery of, like, the science fantasy um, and the anime influences that, it, that it's about, but also the, like, you know, uh, 70s Euro fantasy movie stuff that it's pulling on, right? Mm-hmm. And the uh, Moebius it's <laughs> an insider thing the moebius stuff that uh that it's pulling on to right uh the the, the uh, wachowskis understand the rules of all of those things very well and so you can see where the rules are being neatly interleaved with one another and then sometimes broken on purpose you know what i mean mm-hmm. or like m night Shyamalan is a really good example of this m night Shyamalan understands the rules of contemporary horror you know post 2000s horror very very well um, and then we'll snap some of those strings on purpose. And I like that. I like a kind of genre knowledge that will then play with those things um, in, a, in a really clever way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like that's not what's happening here. The, it's just the face of genre, right? It's the kind of surface level stuff. It's the Power Rangers. It's the Ninja Turtles. It's the Western and has no interest in like taking the rules of the Western and how it works and then applying it to these people. Right. So right. like making the two crews and having the shootout or whatever. Right. Like that doesn't happen here. Uh, it's just the surface level stuff. I, um, I, Oh, I just I had another example of this that, that is now fleeting. Um, anyway, it, it, it's not the kind of thing. Oh, I, I do. Um, gosh, what's the, what is the person's name who writes like the Anno Dracula books? Kim Newman, Kim Newman. I don't enjoy Kim Newman's work. And I actually like Kim Newman as a critic. Perfectly fine, right? I, I think. But Kim Newman likes this part of it, which is like all the pieces of genre smashing into one another. And I think often, that's why I brought up Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman also likes this, which is like mm-hmm. taking all the pieces of genre literature and then subordinating them to like contemporary storytelling as opposed to the rules of the genres that they are from. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think probably, I'm saying all that to say, I think for this kind of thing, I have a higher barrier to entry for like credulity than I would mm-hmm. for if you just gave me a Western, right? Or if mm-hmm. you just gave me 
um, like a Power Rangers knockoff. This is why I really liked it's. Uh, um, um, I'm breaking our no rule discussion for this reference, or no no film discussion for uh, to make this reference. But what is the name of the uh, like Galactic Conqueror who comes to Earth and hangs out with children movie that we watched? Oh, Psycho Gorman. Psycho Gorman. I like that movie quite a bit because it does. Uh, it understands the rules of the, like science fiction thing that it's doing, uh-huh. and also the like hot rod plot that it has. Yes, and it perfectly <laughs> interleaves those things together. You know, yeah, it, like the teen movie kind of thing going on, right? Right. It, it accomplishes this so well. So I'm like, you know, holding. I hold the regulators and and kinds of what you know, for lack of a better word, mashupy kind of work. I hold it to a higher standard than I would basically anything in its own genre. Mm-hmm. Um, but because I find the, the, the shards that stick out to be so much sharper on this kind of thing. And that's just purely me, right? Like that's not, uh, that is not on the regular sound. Stephen King, you do whatever he wants, right? I'm not like creating mm-hmm. a universal rule for what I think should be good or not. But I think you like the shards basically of how these things smash into each other more than, than I do. Uh, possibly, or in this case, at least I find the shards themselves and the particular way that they're smashed together so, uh, enthralling. Cause I agree in that ultimately, like, it doesn't matter. Like, I think there's a more interesting version of this novel where the characters realize that they can use, like, the rules of the Western against the situation that they're in, for instance, right. or something, that'd, right? That would be or, great, because it's a little kid. So, like, right. if, you can, if you can play an episode of Bonanza within the... Right, like, I think that's it, maybe. It's right. Like, I can see so much higher of a ceiling, mm-hmm. like like an infinitely higher ceiling. We, you know, we're in the, the vaulted cathedral of possibility here, and I'm, like, stuck underneath a bench <laughs> right it sucks <laughs> right and there is a real sense in this book that like sort of like once the pieces are in motion um uh king slash bachman really kind of doesn't know what to do with them because now we're just like on this mechanism of like tack wanting to shoot these people over and over again right i mean uh the the little kids know about motocops right like what if the kids knowing something about motocops helped them again like work against tack in some way because tack is kind of because tack and seth are so intertwined by this point right uh there's just something to uh, in uh, the logic of it this is you know it's weak mm-hmm. to whatever form it takes but like because the point is that tax slash seth are obsessed with these things what if that is in fact like a kind of uh weakness in their bond that like tack is helpless to not uh kind of play along and do a yes and when someone responds positively to the moto cops murder fanfic yeah it would be great Mm mm-hmm like, like the, the the possibility here is just infinitely higher. And again, it could just, like, as you're pointing out, right? Like, you could just go back to the well, Steve. <laughs> like, you've yeah, We certainly this. have gone a couple times before yeah. we got to this point. Right. Just go back to the well. Go back to the well for a good idea. <laughs> Please, I'm begging you. Um, and he just resolutely refuses to. It is also interesting to me, too, that the the regulators, this film, this, you know, that, that uh, kind of structures the whole thing. It's the wild bunch, right? Like mm-hmm. that—that's the movie. That's the peck and paw connection. That's the hyperviolent western. That's all this kind of stuff. And like, nothing's done with that. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. Um, other than there's hyper, but even the violence is cartoon violence. Mm-hmm. 
like the the one woman is shot and her shoes are left yes. on the ground. Her feet are left on the ground like a comedy bit. And then yeah. like her body is liquefied and splashes up against a wall. And that is it that's that that is just that's not even the wild bunch, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mostly the death is quick, uh, other than the woman who gets her arm shot off. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is pretty cool. I think I like the way that that scene, I mean, not getting your arm shot off, that's not cool, but <laughs> the way that scene works is really well, really good, right? Because uh, Billingsley's still the the old veterinarian, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he's like, look, I'm trying, but I'm a I'm a veterinarian. <laughs> like, I don't know how to like repair a shot off arm. Um, and uh, it, it, there's a really great like 80s horror film kind of moment too. you know, almost like a trauma moment where they're trying to help her out. And the arm just comes right off in someone's hands. Yeah. Uh, real good body horror. I like that. Mm-hmm. I read this book up against um, a movie you should not go watch because the AMPTP refuses to come to the table with both SAG-AFTRA and the WGA. So do not go watch the film, but I did watch the uh, 1988 The Blob. And mm-hmm. it's got some great of this stuff in it, this kind mm-hmm. of stuff in it. Um, but don't go watch it because the AMPGP needs to come to the table. Hey, did you, did you hear the news last couple days? No. The AMPGP is splintering. The individual studios are trying to make a deal, by uh, uh, side deals. They're, they're undermining the AMPGP. <laughs> that's right hey it turns out that when the studio uh you know when the producers guild specifically the mpgp when they keep saying like hey we're gonna break them we're gonna make them uh we're gonna make all the writers and the actors turn on one another where you know they're gonna uh, make decisions that are bad they won't have solidarity did you know in fact that's just projection <laughs> because ultimately they need all these actors and writers to uh help them make the goods they sell <laughs> No, AI is going to change all that. I'll be able to open up the computer and I'll type in Bonanza plus Power Rangers and I'll get exactly what I want. You know, it, from the mind of Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, it, this is why for the bonus episode for this month, we're doing a Q&A. Yeah. Yeah, and a long one out. probably too. A long Q and A, and you'll be able to listen to it right now. You can go to patreon.com slash range touch. And hopefully it's a, it's also in the link uh in the description below. Uh but of this episode, wherever you're listening to it. But uh hopefully the AMPGP gets their head screwed on straight and makes a deal with the people who generate the value in the media industry. <laughs> I am going to be, uh, I'll save my uh, uh, complaining about this for the end for like the bonus episodes that we are missing on, uh, missing out on in terms of like what we're not watching. <laughs> we probably should have watched the Wild Bunch, right? For this I'm, one. Uh, uh, actually, yeah, that would have been a good one. I think that's probably what we would have done. We'll go back and do it. Yeah. Look, we'll go back. We'll cover some ground we didn't cover. We'll do all the things we're supposed to do at some point. But first, them damn actors. Them damn writers need to get themselves a deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, was I going to say something else about... Okay, yeah, we're talking about shards and things. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, unfortunately, like, despite the sort of, like, promise of all these pieces uh, smashing together, yeah, I don't think it goes quite as high as it does, but there's, like, the, the magical scene to me is the one... It's, like, the final assault on the house where all the survivors have currently camped out, so all of the vans have come up, they've all lined up, 
uh, the windows have rolled down all these freaking cartoon characters and like <laughs> Western actors and the cast of Bonanza are there and they have these massive cartoon guns that shoot like conical bullets because everything yeah, they are is shotguns that shoot uh, the bullets from Super Mario Brothers. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, like all the uh, uh, sort of characters are talking to one another, just sort of like saying like uh, not nonsense, but kind of like weird character sound bites. And there is one of the motocops who is a robot named Rudy. He is Rudy the robot. And they all fucking hate him. It, yeah, right. His his whole thing <laughs> is that he constant all he can say is root, root, root. So he's always like root, root, root. And everyone goes, shut up, Rudy. So what I love about this, how this all comes together is like this final assault. All the characters are there, all these fictional characters. And they're all talking about how they are just going to absolutely murder everyone in this house and how much fun they're going to have doing it. And then Rudy goes, root, root, root. And then all the characters go, shut up, Rudy. Like. It's seeing that as because we get a payoff. It's like a payoff of a you get a, a, a an excerpt from a motocop script early <laughs> on in, in the book. Right. Um, and when I you can see how this would have worked as a screenplay. Right. That's kind of a little setup. And then this little like uh, a morbid joke payoff with all of the characters kind of joining in on the motocops like catchphrase. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just. I, I really like that. I love that moment. Unfortunately, uh, you know, the, the the whole novel really isn't doing as much of that as it, as it could. The other thing I really love. Unfortunately, this novel is surrounded by its own text. <laughs> yes. And, which diminishes its great parts. Well, the other thing that I really love is when the moon rises and it rises too early and it's got like a <laughs> winking smiley face on it and it's wearing a yeah. cowboy hat. I fucking love that. <laughs> Yeah, it's the most like Fallout iconography ass looking thing, right? Yeah. Like, uh, no, I mean they're like really cool. Like I said, like they're great ideas that are just undermined by the book. That the idea that there's all of these like Western creatures that appear, mm-hmm. and they are all like a child's cartoon drawing of them. So like a big vulture appears, and it's like a crayon drawing of a vulture that's transformed into real life, and they're all like, you know, all the people looking are like that's a vulture. And they say, no, I think that's a vulture. It's like someone got confused between what a vulture is and what an eagle is. And then I think it's Steve Ames is like, I think one of its wings is shorter than the other wing. Right. You know, like they're, they're all deeply confused. And then they go and they see the coyotes and the wolves too. And they're the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, you know, I think all of like, all those pieces are cool. It's just like the book is not good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I'm trying to, I'm like running through stuff in my mind. Is there any, oh, there's like a religious family who gets yeah. uh, chased out by tack because their kid like steals one of his power vans. It's, it's important. There's a homeless person who gets killed by tack. Uh, he's the, he's the culmination of the, or not culmination, but he's the initiator of the whole thing. Yeah. And that um, kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah. If, uh, literally the plot of the book, you know, is one day, as you said earlier, uh, one day, the every you know everyone uh re- they don't realize it yet but their their street is cut off from the world and slowly but surely tack begins transforming it and they're the, they're in this kind of locked room nightmare you know mm-hmm. that's the book the catalyst for the whole thing is that there is a homeless guy rooting around in people's garbage uh or whatever uh and you know it's the worst 90s stereotype and even 2023 stereotype of like an unhoused person uh, you know, it's like uh, straight up someone out of they live. You know what I mean? That mm-hmm. level of like whatever. Um, and Tack recognizes that this is like someone who is the lowest of the low and can be vampired out. 
and so uh, uh, connects to him basically and starts vampiring him a little bit and then kills him in the woods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is the thing that gives Tack enough energy to kind of spike and start the whole thing. And then the more people that die, the more energy Tack gets and it kind of snowballs from there. Uh, but that's like the thing that allows basically the first moto cops to start showing up. Mm-hmm. Um, that that combined maybe with uh, Hugh dying. Herb, you things. mean? Uh, Herb, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I, I I'm <laughs> deeply regretful of the error that I've made and uh, confusing one of the 900 characters of this novel with a different character who's not named that. Yeah. Um, and my um, my deep regrets go out to Stephen King and his tightly plotted novel. <laughs> Um, but, but yeah, so that, that's the kind of thing. I guess the other thing to talk about before kind of like off ramping into, to the end part, or we should definitely talk about what happens in the green belt. Cause that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I like, like that a lot, but also Audrey Weiler, um, mm-hmm. because Audrey's entire segment, you know, her and, oh my God, what's his name? I just Herb. did that Herb. Uh, I just did that whole production mm-hmm. and I've completely forgotten immediately. Her and Herb take in Seth. They're doing all the stuff. Um, and Tack begins, you know, she says basically there are two parts because we get to read her journals extensively. It, it, that might be like a fifth of the book, something like yeah. that, a sixth. Yeah. It's a big chunk. Um, and we get to read those and she basically says, you know, there's Seth and there's what she calls like the stalky little boy, mm-hmm. uh, which is like when Tack takes over and it starts mind controlling them. So if like. Um, it prevents them from speaking. It makes them start hitting themselves. It is like keeping, uh, Herb from sleeping. Um, and so it's like, it's tormenting them in order to like suck energy from them. And it starts making her dress as like the sexy power ranger, basically mm-hmm. yeah. uh, the sexy motocop. And Steve's bringing, I, I do like this idea, uh, that Steve is bringing in of like, isn't it interesting that these like little kids toys have all have like a sexy lady involved? Yeah. You know, and that's going back into comic books and all that kind of stuff too. You know, Steve's thinking about what is the like psychosexual impulse to make like, you know, Cobra commander have a hot lady following him around. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, Cause we get that too. She's, she, she is like you said in this one, a vampire for some reason. No, but, no, there's there, yeah. There's like the uh, Cassie styles who yes, Cassie Styles. right. She's like the, the, the sexy power ranger. And then there's, yeah, the sexy vampire, like evil yeah. lady. Yeah. And they are sexy in the same way. Right. You know, they, mm-hmm. they look like 19, uh, you know, I seventies on up. Um, uh, comic book characters, right? You know, low cut shirt, tight short mm-hmm. shorts, all this kind of stuff. And Audrey is deeply concerned, um, because Tack is making her dress like this character, right? So mm-hmm. Tack has this like libido, sexuality, whatever that is in him. It it is this like acquisitive, violent nightmare creature, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's living inside of Seth. And there is this implicit sexual threat. That's ongoing constantly. It's like constantly making her like grab her nipples and twist. You know, yeah. it starts basically sexually tormenting her. Yeah. Um. And this is a rerun of all the last several books we've read. Right. Like yeah. misogynistic domestic violence um, mm-hmm. is is getting kind of played out here. But in a, this like game of telephone way that in very Bachman style I think in some ways Steve needs the Bachman name or wants the Bachman name to play with this. Mm-hmm. But um, it it is um, what is the word uh, salacious? Yes, 
Mm -hmm. right? It's played up. It's deeply sexualized. We don't see a single moment of Audrey appearing in this book that doesn't talk about how good her legs look. Yeah. I mean, there's a bit where um, she talks about in her diary of uh, sometimes when when Tack is kind of on the prowl, the house gets like a weird energy to it. And the only way she can like disperse disperse it is if she goes into the bathroom and like masturbates. Mm-hmm. And it's like, mm. Mm-hmm. and so. The, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, and this is also really um, if we're going to like take the book up on its offer, right? There's an implicit offer here to read this in desperation together in some way. Yeah. Uh, the fact that Audrey in desperation is the character who is also kind of sexualized, not kind of, is sexualized, right? And is also suborned by Tack in kind yeah. of this weird way. I don't know what to do with this. Well, I, I'm laughing here because I, I did not even connect this, but uh, it's also she's got great legs in that book, too. Yes. And that's that's what reveals her. We laughed about that in the last episode, right? But what reveals her is that the uh, what's his face can't stop staring at her legs, right? Yeah. So it's literally the same thing, right? The same thing going on here. And it feels a little, um, you know, uh, the Bachman name. And the Bachman style novel feels like it unleashes Steve a little bit here to be like, isn't this salacious and gross? Uh-huh. Um, but which feels a little odd compared to what felt like several novels of trying to grapple with how he wrote women this way. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like mm-hmm. uh, it, it feels a little like Steve. Whoa, whoa. It felt like I, the word progress is in a you know is not a thing to a word to use here, right? But it felt like he had worked through these ideas and thought a little bit more deeply about them and how he portrays women and and does it. And now he gives us all the domestic abuse of Rose Matter, but played as salacious and uh, hammered on significantly and with no resolution whatsoever. In fact, a demon made us do it. So who can know where the root of this is socially? Mm-hmm. And look, I don't need every Stephen King novel to be like a treatise on the social violence and misogyny, right? Like it's a silly expectation to have. And also he's not equipped to do it uh, as we are well aware, right? We read the books, um, but it does feel like, I don't know, like uh, finally Steve, uh, someone uh, let let the handcuffs loose, you know, uh, yeah. he's, Steve's taking his shirt off. He's lifting weights out in the front yard. There, there's some <laughs> weird like dude bro energy going on in this book that that d- feels out of sorts with the last couple books. Yeah. Uh, I, I, the voice I, made him yeah. do it, Michael. Yeah, the voice. Well, I have I have some more thoughts on on this, but uh, it's part of like I guess the meta text. We can talk then about how this thing ends. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, do we have or I guess two two other things to just get your comment on? Okay, that stick out in my mind. We're going oh, back to belt. the green belt. That's one of them, and then um, a thing that you made me think about just a minute ago, which is the um, constant use of like intertext stuff here. Right, we're mm-hmm. we're almost going back to carrier the dead zone in terms yes. of like stuff from the world you know like uh diary entries like you said the script stuff uh-huh. we also get a script of the regulators mm-hmm. um we get a bunch of stuff like that right oh newspaper clippings yep. too Don't mm-hmm. we get a newspaper clipping yep. of what when the garen family's killed and a few other things like that uh i don't know how'd you how'd you take that we haven't seen that in a while yeah uh i i think of this as and this is part of like uh i do think that king is doing a kind of big uh, 
retrospective meta-commentary on his career, his uh, kind of history as a novelist, and sort of his process. Um, that is, like, I just don't think you you do this, like, weird stunt that he's done with these two novels, one by your pseudonym and one by you, with, like, the same cast of characters, uh, without being aware and intentional about some of this stuff. Uh, so, and, yeah, the- and- and notably in that Johnny Marinville, we talked about in the last episode, Johnny Marinville being like a very clear stand in, you know, mm-hmm. of for, for King, that is much more pronounced in this book. Yes. Mm-hmm. Why like do you think of his has, perfect memory, by the way? I don't know what to do with that. Do you think that Steve, so this is a real, this is something we've brought up before, right? That like in King, there is a lot of, um, uh, you know, especially with all the si- the shining esque stuff and the TK stuff, there's a lot of like intrusive thoughts. We've talked about that before. That like, yeah, intrusive thoughts are a load bearing element for the Stephen King oeuvre, and we do know over and over again that that King will see something in the world, and he will have a thought about that thing, and it bugs him until he writes about it. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm thinking here the the really famous one that sticks out is him talking the origin of the mist. You know. Oh, yeah. The power going out, going to the store, being at the meat aisle, having the mental image of the thing flying in and like perching there. And he just can't get it out of his head. So he writes the mist to like work through that. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder, I it, you know, he he's such a good character study. I do wonder if he has a, you know, I, perfect memory, whatever. Right. But like if he has a very good visual uh, uh, memory and it is. Uh, good at pulling that kind of stuff in a way that feels, in, you know, not intrusive thoughts. You know, that that's a kind of psychological evaluation that I'm not prepared to give out of just reading someone's books, right? But we've read a lot of interviews. We've read all the you know, all the books so far. And it does feel like this, like, psychological profile that we get of Marinville here is, is King, right? Like, mm-hmm. in his proclivities and the way he thinks, even where he has to undergo an intervention for his drugs and alcohol abuse, right? It happens at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, so I don't know. Do you think this is him uh, saying a little bit about himself here? I mean, I think, so, I, so this carries over from Desperation. We didn't talk about it then, but one of the things uh, we get in both books about Johnny Marinville is his kind of, uh, 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 Oh, were I one of those people who is destined to forget things, who could turn off the way that my own brain works, but I am just so uh, driven to perceive things and like uh, uh, see kind of like the sequence, right? The the move by move. Here is how something terrible happened. Here is what it was like in the moments to the lead up. Here is uh, piece by piece all of the little like shards flying out. Here is the here is the fallout here, here and here. Uh, I think that is probably at least to some degree King being, uh, reflective and honest about his own writing process, right? Like the, the ways that, uh, things stick in your head or like even, even experiencing something and thinking like, oh, this would be good for a story. Mm -hmm. Right. I think there is something to that, that, uh, and even beyond, uh, like, ideas occurring to you we found various bits and pieces of evidence of king just like meeting a person and then that person showing up in their story right like right uh, and uh, and very well drawn too yeah right like a complete human being right uh uh you know like a a peter straw being bill denborough in it (laughs) yeah right uh so yeah i i think there's definitely something going on uh there with with like johnny the writer um 
Uh, what was the other part of that, or do we want to talk about the green belt? What was the uh, oh the intertext and stuff? Oh, the intertext. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, so yeah, yeah. I think. Uh, in some ways, the inner texts are showing up here because, well, one, uh, we know for a fact that those inner texts, uh, when they showed up in Carrie, were used to make Carrie long enough to be a novel. So if you have a story that is struggling to be long enough to be a novel because it actually came from a screenplay, here's something you can do. That's absolutely true. Right. Uh, I also think uh, for maybe the first half or quarter of them they work really well they work less well when they stop being kind of like a selection of things for at the beginning it's all kind of like different stuff right news article piece of a script uh write up of these toy of this toy line uh at about the halfway point it's just it's audrey's diary forever yeah uh and as you say like audrey's diary mainly uh just explains to us in detail things that we know have already happened in which we don't necessarily need all the detail on to make sense of them uh the only other one that's kind of like a big exposition bearing one is uh symes i think is his name uh, the guy who works at the mine in desperation, who gives the Garen family the tour during which uh, Seth gets yeah. possessed initially. Uh, by the way, Symes is a character from Desperation, the novel. He does basically the same thing there, working for the mine. Um, but uh, uh, that one, and that one is sort of in a similar position in that I already know that Seth somehow got to this mine and got possessed by the demon in it. Like I've been able to work that out. So here I just kind of get the blow by blow. Uh, and nah. like, I mean, it's interesting. I think like in how uh, uh, that guy's position, because he, he ends up lying to Audrey when she writes him to ask, did anything happen when the Garen family visited the mine? Uh, and his whole letter is something that was found after his death, after he retired. That's the editorial note we get on it. Yeah. And so his entire position as a narrator is like, here's this like really weird thing that happened. The kid ran down into the mine and something was wrong with him when we got him out. Like he was smiling in a way that didn't make any or that was strange and unnerving. And then his uh, and then I heard that family died and that's so sad. And then his aunt wrote me and asked me if anything had happened. And I lied to her and I'm not really sure why I lied to her, but I did. And I feel really, really bad about that. The end. The end. Yeah, it it uh, it doesn't do anything. Mm -hmm. Better to not. Why keep it a mystery? Like it, it, like at the level of craft here. Why not just, you know, have no contact between the mine stuff, and then just have this be an inner text later on. Right. I, you know, like you could have a. We stopped at the mine. Nothing happened from the brother. Mm hmm. No Symes. Later in the book, Symes' death note, you know, deathbed confession, which is essentially mm -hmm. what it is. Like, there, there's no reason for, like, the convolution in the middle. Right. It doesn't do anything. Mm -mm. It's very weird. I mean, for a while, it seems like they're going to suggest that Tack was somehow mind-controlling that guy, too. Uh, except then it gets extremely established that Tack has a limited radius. Yes, because that becomes... Uh, the rules of Tack become very important. For mm -hmm. some reason. But let's talk about the green belt. Uh, yeah. I, I think this is pretty cool. It's where, basically, at that point in the novel, there are two houses where everyone on the street has been kind of wrangled because the uh, the regulators, right? These yeah. The uh, the motocops and their uh, additional buddies from cowboy films. 
they keep coming back and forth. Everyone's been wrangled into two houses, everyone who's still alive. And they both independently make a bid to like go for this green belt. So like kind of, uh, I don't know, like a wooded area behind the suburb. Um, they make a bid to go for that and then run to the road from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then things get wild because tack can, can, Ooh, tack can control. That was weird. Tack <laughs> can control stuff back there too. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it's, it's, uh, in Trajan and Marinville and I think Steve Ames, uh, they're part, they're one group and they're going out through the green belt trying to figure out what's going on. And then from the other house, it's, oh no, it's not, it's, um, I think in the first one, it's just in Trajan and Ames. And then from the other house, it's Marinville yeah. and uh, the twins, the teenage twins, Jim and Dave Reed. Um, yeah. So uh, Steve and Entragian are like going off. They're, they're trying to hit the road, as you say. And then they get as they're going through the green belt. They're like, um, there's a cactus here and there's a cactus over there. There's a lot of cacti out here in these Ohio woods, and the cacti look really strange. They've got, like, really, you know, like, blocky points and and very sharp, and, like, they're weirdly shaped. Uh, and then they eventually go, th- like, uh, get out of the green belt, and it's just the desert. And this is when the cowboy moon rises, and I love that. Uh, and then I think they see possibly some weird coyotes, uh, and then they are being chased by a cougar. Um, and this is, you know, the midway point of the book. And, uh, you know, back in desperation, uh, they were also attacked by a cougar at the midway point of the book. Hmm. Mm. But uh, as they're so they they like turn around and they are running back. And Johnny and the twins are coming up on the same path in the green belt, but they don't know. This is important is that the houses did not consult each other to say that they were both sending out scouting parties. Uh, and so as uh uh, Steve and Kali are running back. Uh, the twins and Johnny are stand. They hear them and they start panicking. And then uh, Jim, the uh, one of the twins, uh, reflexively like fires at the thing that's running toward them. And it turns out he has shot Kali and Trajan. Uh, and then the cougar jumps on Steve's back and claws him up a bit, but he survives. Uh, but the the kid is so upset at having shot Kali that he then shoots himself, except, as you already said, we later then jump into Tack's head. And Tack is like, ooh, it was so nice when that kid got so upset with himself that I could slip into his mind and make him commit suicide. It was me. It was me the whole time. It's very much the, I mean, Tack here, Tack in desperation is like a cool, weird demon thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know what the hell's going on with him. He's mysterious in some ways. It works, mm-hmm. right? You know, wh- wh- however you feel about the book, Tack, I think, works in there. Mm-hmm. Here, he's that weird little screaming goblin we hated from Insomnia. Yeah, I mean, so he's the one same of, guy. Yeah, one of the ways to think about, like, desperation to hear is that all of the characters get reduced, and they're all being reduced in like specific ways or like they get reduced in particular ways, either like less backstory. They do less in the plot. Uh, their backstories get simplified or something. But like in the case of Tack, Tack gets reduced from being this um, kind of metaphysical evil of pure potential to being. And this sort of aligns in a uh, unsavory way, maybe with the autism stuff. But like Tack here is very inward looking, right? Tack is like... Uh, uh, appetite but not a uh, uh, raging like expansive ever-growing appetite uh it is like uh 
piddling, uh, cruel, small, and like okay with being small, right? It wants to like cut off this neighborhood from the rest of the world and have its little playground forever. Yeah. Um, but also this is a, a big meta stuff that I'll uh, revisit after we've talked about the ending. Uh, this is this is a uh, like a. Uh, uh, pinging off of the Gnostic stuff that gets brought up in Desperation, right? Tack is being figured as a demiurge here mm-hmm. in a way that he wasn't quite in in Desperation. In Desperation, there was a sense that Tack was trying to go toe-to-toe with God, that book's version of God. And here Tack is, Tack doesn't even really have any consciousness of other powers, right? Tack is conscious only of the things that it feeds on. Yeah, 100%. They, uh... The it is fully self-absorbed. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, the I, I think Colleen Trajan's death is like an all time good Steve senseless death. It is. It really is. I remember being very struck by it when I first read the book because I just felt like in Trajan was going to. Like, I, I don't know, there's something about the way he gets introduced. Maybe it's because of, like, my young uh, pro-cop sentiment or something. Or, like, the way that right. the story tends to work, right? The character who's the former cop who's been kind of maligned tends to have a rising moment in a story like this and then makes good. And here he just gets shot in the face. Yeah, well, and, and not just that, too, right? But, like, he he is a man with depression. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, you know, like, he's a depressed former cop. And everyone thinks that... Like, everyone's bought the bad thing about him, right? These crooked mm-hmm. or evil. I think someone says he killed a kid, right? Like, there's yeah. the, 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 these different rumors about him, right? And he knows they're not true. He knows that he was just, he was being the good cop. You mm-hmm. know, it's like, it's the great fantasy, right? Right. He was the good cop. There was a good cop, right, in this mm-hmm. universe. And the bad cops send him, you know, uh, they they uh, ruined his life, basically. And he's got depression. And this is his, like... Um. Uh. What do you call it? Like. Uh. Like metaphysical moment of redemption. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like he could defeat the the real evil at, at the you know at the heart of the, of the evils of the world. He's our opportunity, and what happens is a teenager shoots him in the head. Mm-hmm. You know, a teenager who's never fired a gun before or, or has fired a gun, but like you know, mm-hmm. um, in, in the way that Americans use guns. Um, and, and it's unceremonious. He gets like the top of his head, like blown off, but he's still alive. So he's like crawling around on the ground, like, and like making all these noises. And he like bonks into with the top of his like sheared off head. He bonks into a cactus with its big long pokies. Yeah. And, uh, and falls down like every part about it's just like the, yep. It, it has the storytelling function that you're talking about, but also just like the way it happens. It's just a, it is an un- um, I don't know, an ungratifying death, mm-hmm. you know, a bad death. It's a bad death. Yes, a bad death indeed. And uh, it's good. I like that. Yeah. Um, so that's that. Oh, and that actually sort of sets up sort of the ending. So it's good we can talk about that because uh, uh the other boy, the other Reed, uh, see, that, so that was Jim, so this is Dave. Uh, he mm-hmm. goes back and he tells his mom, Cammy. <laughs> gotta get your spreadsheet out. Yeah. <laughs> he goes back and he tells his mom, hey, can't, hey, mom, uh, uh, my brother's dead. Uh, and she's she, like, loses it immediately. She's, like, blaming Johnny. He even blames Johnny, right? And Johnny blames himself a little bit. Like, why, you were the adult, why weren't you holding the gun? Uh, but when they left the house, like the kids took the gun specifically and like their mom sent them out. And so I don't know. Anyway, the point is Cammy is 
really upset that one of her twin boys is dead. Mm-hmm. Um, meanwhile, uh, Audrey shows up. She runs across the street because Tack has had to take a a, a breather after we all of this. We have not murder. said what what Tack's fundamental flaw is. We, I'm getting there. <laughs> okay, I just realized that. Yeah, because it is said earlier in the novel, and we, I, we have just not said it. Uh-huh. Oh my god, I can't believe it. If you haven't read this book, which I hope you haven't, you are about to get hammered with mm-hmm. one of the stupidest things that's ever been put into a book. <laughs> you are okay. about to be destroyed by the information Michael is going to lay down uh-huh. here. But Audrey so- has gotten away. Yes, Audrey gets away because uh, she still has to make tax food and Seth's mm-hmm. food, right? And Seth will only eat uh, hamburger and Chef Boyardee spaghetti, like from a can, and also only drink chocolate milk. And so the house is filled with like bowls and glasses of, of like rotting this stuff and congealed and it's disgusting. Ugh. But the kid just eats and eats and eats. Uh, but... Audrey has noticed that Tack always vacates Seth when Seth has to go to the bathroom. And so... Not just go to the bathroom. Yes. When he poops. Yes. And so, uh, noticing this and suspecting that Tack is getting ready to make some sort of play or like knowing that, that, that it's getting ready to happen... Audrey spikes the chocolate milk with laxative, ensuring that Seth, uh, or rather Seth's body, is going to be pooping a whole lot. And so she... uh, (laughs) That's right, y'all. Yep. Hot critical pooping. So while this uh, little possessed boy runs to the bathroom to have mega shits, Audrey runs across the street and says... Okay, guess what? My nephew is possessed. He's doing all this to all of us. Uh, we have to take care of him now. Uh, her plan, and uh, she enlists Johnny specifically to help her here because we get a couple of uh, little reminiscences on this at various points, is that like Johnny often went across the street and like hung out with her and Seth, and they had a pretty good relationship. Actually, something that occurred to me that I thought was really interesting is um, we never quite i don't know maybe we do later uh it's a little bit of like the neighborhood and insomnia um but there was something like a a additionally uh untapped here about how all of these people live on the street and all kind of have little relationships that precede Mm -hmm. the story of the novel and we don't get as uh i think there's a lot of gas in there but we just don't use it up um i think there could be more done with that anyway uh uh she's like johnny you've got to come over and help me uh, get Seth uh, away from the house because she has uh, surmised that Tack has a limited like radius of effect um, that if you like it's something like 30 to 50 feet or something that like uh, that's as much as like uh, uh, Tack can do at one time if Tack is on its own outside of Seth like being in Seth makes Tack more powerful so she's like Johnny come help me uh, <laughs> come help me rescue my shitting little nephew <laughs> Yes. Uh, uh, we'll get him away from Tack, and then Tack will like not have a host, and then uh, hopefully, right, that'll break the connection, and everything will go back to normal. And we kind of know we get some confirmation of this on the other side because we get a couple chapters of Tack like internal monologue, and we get a couple chapters of Seth internal monologue, and Seth is basically like in a 
what's it called? The like warehouse that shows up in Dreamcatcher. Yeah, right. Like the little mind palace. Yeah. And so he's in there. And he's like doing stuff and all of his like bodily functions have like wires and knobs and switches and shit. Uh-huh. Uh, and Tack is like, you know, hunting around in the dark there. So we, so we get some confirmation of this whole system on the other side. Mm hmm. Uh, and also importantly, uh, Audrey has her own mind palace that it's implied Seth built for her, uh, which is like a, uh, a sort of gazebo or sort of like a, a little installation at a, a resort in upstate New York called Mohonk. Uh, she had a really great time there with a friend of hers from college. And so whenever things are getting really bad with Tack or Tack is like mind controlling her, really like puppeting her body and her mind is like aware uh she like recedes into sort of this like uh, a little safe place fantasy that she intuits in some way that seth has kind of like helped her build right this kind of like good memory that she can revisit over and over again yeah um so uh she and johnny run over to rescue seth uh unbeknownst to either of them cammy uh the mother of the reeds she's heard about this too and so she gets her hand on, I think, Tom Billingsley's gun, maybe. And she sneaks over with them. Um, they, uh, uh, Johnny and Audrey, go into the house. Audrey picks up uh, Seth from the toilet. Tack is there, like, in the house, like, waiting for the boy to finish. It's just uh, hanging out there like uh, this little sparkling campfire thing, just, like, yeah. doodling around in the bathroom. Yes, uh, it realizes that it has been tricked. It is very upset at having been tricked, but it's like, ah, but I got one over. It's not that I have to leave when he shits. It's that I prefer to leave. I would not <laughs> like to be in him when he is shitting. It hurts. He says it hurts him to be there when the boy is pooping. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, what? well, I <laughs> what? How do you get here? <laughs> like, St how does Stephen King get to the thing of like, all right. I think I figured it out. <laughs> it hurts the extra dimensional entity to be there when the boy is pooping. Well, it's because, right, it's because the extra dimensional entity uh, desires human power, but is also uh, inadequate to living with the frailties of human embodiment. But it loves eating garbage food and drinking chocolate milk. <laughs> No, but don't don't you understand that waste elimination is something that fundamentally marks humans as like animals, as mm. non-powerful, as mm. blah 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 blah, right? The, we like do have I, shame when we do it. That's right. yes, right. Tech has no shame, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so Audrey like picks up the the little boy. Uh, and is running and Tack is like, well, I'll show you and like tries to possess, uh, Seth while he is pooping and also being carried. Uh, and Cammy pops in with her gun and she is so angry that, and it's, in, uh, uh, it is implied, is it implied or is it actually basically confirmed by this point that, uh, Seth is using Cammy as part of this like elaborate suicide plot, she shoots. It, yes, in this moment, it is revealed because her eyeballs start bulging. And well, we no, know no, no, no. That, yeah, go ahead. Uh, she doesn't. Her eyeballs eyeballs don't start bulging until uh uh the tack goes into her. Wait, no. Tack tries to go in, and, and Seth's already there. Right? Is that not how that ends? Maybe I maybe I I missed. The I order think of so. Operations. No, I think that the revelation that we have that Seth has possessed her is that her eyes are bulging, and we think it's tack. Oh. But Tack is not in there, so it must be Seth. I think that's it. I think oh, that's how okay. it works. Look, 
hey, y'all, here's the thing. This book is also not good because it's, its critical plot moment is confusing. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, the point is, Cammy shoots both Seth and Audrey. Yes. Uh, kills them, and then Tack is like, no, 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 no! And then, like, goes full force into her. But as we have also learned from Tack's kind of uh, ruminations on its life, the only host that is capable of sustaining it uh, indefinitely is Seth himself. So, uh, Cammy's head explodes. Yes. Yeah. It just, it just, it straight up scanners just yeah. explodes. And then Johnny just like stumbles back out onto the porch where everything is returning to normal. And then you hear all the emergency sirens as the other, like, you know, as the fire truck starts pulling up. Because one of the houses has been struck by lightning and burning down and blah, blah, blah. Um, But yeah. <laughs> like, uh, that happens. Um. The the other thing that uh, Tack says before uh, Cammy's head explodes is, uh, you know, you can't do this. I'll find you. I'll find all of you. And then after Cammy's head explodes, there is like a big uh, uh, cloud that looks like a cowboy in the sky <laughs> that like drifts off to the west. And they're like, my God, it's a ghost rider. Ghost riders in the sky. Weirdly, not a song that's going to show up on the mixtape. I, I found it. Uh, it's on 4.46 of my thing. Okay. Um, tax place, tax time. Which is, if we get time and dates for all the little things. This is tax internal monologue. It has perhaps three seconds while the woman with the gun calls out to realize it has been outplayed. How it has been outplayed. A few seconds of incredulity in which to wonder how that could happen after all the millennia it has spent trapped in the dark, thinking and planning. Then, even as it begins to realize that Seth isn't really inside the body it has been trying to re-enter, the woman in the doorway opens fire. So it's trying yeah. to get inside of Seth, and Seth is actually in Cammy the whole time. And then, okay. after Seth is dead, because Seth shoots himself, uh, and also Audrey, mm-hmm. uh, the head explosion occurs. Okay. Well. <laughs> Neat. Uh, I guess. Something. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Uh, but so this is where I think like kind of big level, some stuff may or may not be happening. Let, let's just say it. I'm, I'm a generous reader. I'm capable of be- being a generous reader, despite what some people sometimes say about me on these shows. Uh, Tack does find all of them, right? I'll find you. I'll find all of you. And that's the thing that Johnny is left thinking about is hearing like Tack saying, I'll find you. That's what happens in desperation is Tack mm-hmm. finds everyone again, brings them all together and is beaten again. And what is sort of the uh, uh, like, uh, uh, you know, coup de gras here is that Tack doesn't even know that it's following up on the vow that it's made in this other like parallel reality. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh as David explains in Desperation, Tack thinks that it's pe- uh, picking people at random, but in fact, it's picking these specific oh, people yeah. uh, that God has chosen to be the ones to defeat Tack. So the Regulators is like set in a world, right, where Tack seems to almost win, is defeated, and is ported to like this other world where Stephen King is the author and is like, it is irrevocably defeated or like, yeah. you know, maybe more irrevocably. Um so there's this whole thing happening between these two books, and we can think about this uh, in light of, say, what was going on in the dark half, uh, 
where King uses the idea of the pseudonym as a, a way of dividing the author into kind of like, you know, good and bad qualities, like there are aspects of myself that I don't like. Bachman seems to get revivified here, so King can actually, like, post-sobriety, uh, revisit, because think about, again, uh, The Dark Half is the first novel written fully post-sobriety also, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he, so there's something there about um, this other person, right, that I can be or used to be, that I am sometimes, this, like, other segment of my personality, and sort of pushing... Uh, the excesses, the uh, anger, and so on and so forth into kind of that persona, and then uh, using it here in in kind of like the Bachman-King duo, uh, this is the guy that I was, right? Or, or this is like, this is part of also why I think there's so much like revisiting of old material here, mm-hmm. um, is that King is trying to position himself, Stephen King, as having surmounted uh, various like problems with his own storytelling or like uh, tendencies that he is trying to now deny uh, by smashing them into this Bachman book and having the thing be like clearly subordinated to the King volume. Uh, and, you know, so this is also tack as the demiurge, right? The the evil little god uh, who doesn't see people as characters, who only sees them as action figures for bodies and sex, uh, uh, corpses and sex, I guess I should say. Mm-hmm. Um and like there's a total absence of God right in this book. In fact, in that interview that I was reading earlier, King says about uh, the regulators, right? There is no God in this book except for television. Hmm. And and so like King is also saying like I'm a guy who's going and he says like I am I'm a religious person. I believe in God uh, and with desperation and in, in, uh, the regulators, he seems to be making a kind of new claim for what his authorial persona is and what his authorial project is in a, a you know, a, a contrast to all of this Bachmanian stuff. But as I think you said in the last episode, this also requires actually, I think, rewriting what Bachman was to King through the 80s, which was weirdly the opposite. Bachman was kind of like there was some bad Bachman stuff, Um but I think the Bachman books are also where you see King grasping toward a kind of more mainstream literary style. Like I think of Roadwork here is very much that kind of thing, right? Yeah. Um, that there was a bit more uh, introspection that was going on. Like it was like the Bachman books were bleak, right? They were not happy books. Um, but I don't think that they were as thoughtless as this book maybe tries to imply that they were. And I think that's really interesting, too. Yeah, I mean, I I buy the first thing you said all the way back, which is like, I think the idea of thinking of these as as, like, this is the first book, Desperation being the second, a a kind of pocket universe of this that kind of pays off in another um, scenario, right? You find it again, and ultimately it's defeated by the ultimate power, which is God or the white or, you know, the stuff that we're going to see over the next 20 years of Stephen King. Mm -hmm. That's going to come up over and over again. I think that's compelling. I don't think Steve thinks deeply enough about his own work, just to be frank, um, <laughs> to to get to what you said is like a conscious um, effort. Yeah. But I think that that's certainly like on, on a more baseline level. I think he thinks of Bachman as like a mini version of himself. And I do think you're exactly right that that implicitly what happens is that desperation subordinates Bachman to King. Right. Like, yeah. His 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 wanting to use Bachman and not Stephen King writing as Richard Bachman, but Bachman is to use the the words on the page 
to make it clear that these are two tendencies within one guy mm-hmm. as opposed to using his name to do so or whatever. So I think that's right. Yeah. Notably, the author photo on the regulators um, prior, they had there was an author photo of Richard Bachman, who was we've mm-hmm. talked about like this. It's come up in interviews. It was just like some guy. <laughs> it's like Kirby McCauley's friend, maybe or something. I can't. I, we yeah. talked about who exactly it is. Yeah. Uh, but in the regulators, the author photo is there and it is a photo of Stephen King when he's like 18 years old. Right. So th- there is like, yeah, there is like both an acceptance of the of the persona, but also uh, the the Stephen King author photo on desperation is him present day. So, right. you know, a, 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 something about the trajectory of his own history and like what Bachman represents to him and what he's, I think, trying to put behind him in some way. Um, uh, I, there was something I was going to say about that thing, and now I've forgotten. Um, so it sounds like. We got to do some segments. Yeah, segments. My favorite Kingism. This is the segment where we each pick something that we read uh, that to us is uh, remarkable for the King style. The the thing that everyone knows and loves, something that is indelibly Kingy uh, or just like the thing that he wrote that sticks in your head. Because I wouldn't say mine is necessarily like a good King is or not like a I mean, I think it's a fine thing, but um, I don't know if I would point to this as. <laughs> You know, when you read Stephen King, you get a lot of this kind of thing. Maybe you do, but it's um, Ralphie, the shitty little boy. I I also love that, like, the, the wussy father becomes like the absolute spoiled shit heel of a kid in this in this book. That's just such yes. a weird transposition. Um, he mocks his older sister uh, at the beginning of the book because they go to the convenience store and he's she's buying like a magazine or something. It's like, a you know, a tiger beat or something like that. Um, and, uh, she's 11 and he's like six and he's trying to like harass her cause he calls her Margaret, which is her middle name. And she doesn't like it. And he calls her Margaret the maggot. And so he says, Margaret, the maggot loves Ethan Hawke. And for whatever reason, that is one of the lines from this novel that has always been in my head is this little boy saying Margaret, the maggot loves Ethan Hawke. Well, it's like this absolutely only Steve would do this stapling of something that's right out of 1955, right? Uh-huh. Like, I don't think, I've never heard a child in real life talk in the kind of, I don't know, it's not even euphemisms, right? But these like short cultural shorthands that Steve loves to use, right? Like these nicknames that are way too complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, like a kid wouldn't say this. A kid would just like, call you a curse word (laughs) like you're like you know asshole whatever right Mm -hmm. they wouldn't make this complicated nickname i've never heard a child do anything like this uh and uh it 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 is precise what you're saying the thing that's so shocking about it is the combination of this like throwback thing that i've only ever seen happen in a stephen king novel with a hyper contemporary reference It, it, it would be like margaret the maggot loves Fortnite. (laughs) <laughs> you know and you're like what yeah. what are you saying or mm-hmm. like uh uh you know uh uh i don't know it, yeah it's weird mm-hmm. you want to hear mine sure mine is when uh uh white liberalism gets uh uh you know stephen king's really sending up white folks uh-huh by having johnny marinville uh climb over the back of a black man oh yeah and there's the, the most unga- like it's yet more right of Stephen King's uh uh like 
I don't know. Black people are cool with it. Like whatever uh-huh. weird behavior white people do. Like the sign of a cool black person is that they're they're cool with you, whatever you do, right? Like mm-hmm. there's this, and this is going all the way back to The Shining, right? Like yeah, <laughs> this is the exact same impulse. I'm not gonna read the whole scene, but it is a scene in which Johnny Marinville literally has to put his foot on the back of uh, Brad. What's his last name? Uh, uh, Josephson. Josephson. Uh, in order to climb over a fence, which is like eight feet tall or six feet tall or something, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but so, so what happens is that, uh, that Brad like comes to it and it's like, I need to climb over you, you know, you know, like, uh, you, or, you know, Brad is like, I need to help you over this by like giving you the leg up. Mm-hmm. Johnny Marinville's uncomfortable with it. But then Johnny Mar- Marinville becomes what we might say too comfortable with it. <laughs> And starts making up these uh, things like the movie that Brad will be in, which is called Black Men Can't Climb Fences. Mm -hmm. And he's going to get Mario Van Peebles to direct it. (laughs) Yes! And Larry Fishburne will play him. Not Lawrence Fishburne, but Larry Fishburne. 1996. And and then Brad, like, yes ands the whole thing, right? It's, like, Mm -hmm. very much the way that Stephen King writes, like, black adult men who are, like, no matter what racial humor you bring up as a white guy, Mm-hmm. They're always going to yes and you. So it, yeah. that's a real Kingism. Yeah. And here it is. Yeah. Uh, so what in the Kingiverse is the next segment. And it's where we outline connections between what we just read and the, the Kingiverse more broadly. Uh, I don't think it's uh, too much to say that really the, the Kingiverse is fully here now. It's been like latent and implicit in a lot of stuff. Uh, but just between the desperate... Uh, desperation in the regulators uh this is i'll put it this way this these two books are teaching you how to read the next book that we're going to talk about right uh yeah and and notably what we had in the 80s right of the what we called the king of earth perhaps more mm -hmm. appropriately should have been called the king of world yeah because it's like a big shared world Mm -hmm. with, with a bunch of of geography and people Mm -hmm. we are now in the king of verse Mm-hmm. Which is like a universe of Stephen King stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one of the uh, uh, big things here. I mean, so first of all, uh, everyone in this character, everyone in this novel is a character from the previous novel, except in slightly different contexts. And they're happening in parallel worlds. There you go. Uh, but other things that are important. Um, and this is actually like the quote unquote true ending of the novel that we sort of skipped on. Uh, the Mohonk Mountain Resort. Uh, that Audrey goes to in kind of her memories. Uh, that is a place that has shown up before. It was the place that, um, what the hell's his name? The main character of Thinner and his wife, they went there. It was like one of their favorite places, right? Um, the other thing that is important about it then is that Stephen King personally went there with his family and Peter Straub's family, and I think a couple of other families. Uh, this was written up in the Castle Rock newsletters by Naomi herself. They did like a murder mystery, like dinner party weekend. Oh, right, right, yeah. right. I forgot about that. Right. Um, so the this place really exists uh, and it's shown up favorably a couple times. It shows up favorably here. Then the end of the novel, the actual tail end, uh, is very interesting because it jumps back to 1986 
Except maybe it's not the 1986 of the world that we were just reading about. Uh, the It's a letter written by a woman who is on her honeymoon to like her friend back home. And she is staying at the Mohonk Mountain Resort. And there is a like gazebo on the grounds that is said to be haunted by a mother and son. Uh, and it is the precise gazebo where Audrey was always having her things and whatever. Uh, but this, you know, it's this woman and a little boy who are supposed to be seen there. And then it gets like increasingly ridiculous. <laughs> it's extremely uh, just silly. Yeah, it's silly. So it is it is positioned like the, the wo- Frank Darabont ass silly. Yeah. The woman is writing back to her friend because she's like, oh, I know you love a good ghost story. You've read like three copies of The Shining to Tatters. Um, It's nothing like The Overlook Hotel from The Shining. The Shining, the novel by Stephen King, (laughs) who wrote about the boy in The Shining. (laughs) Uh, so she talks about how there's like this haunted gazebo and one of the things, so people see a a woman in what they think is her son there, thing number one, but then thing number two, and this is the absurd thing, sometimes, sometimes there's bowls of hamburger and spaghetti that are left there and no one on the grounds can explain where they come from. And then also like some children's drawings. And then she attaches one of the children's drawings to her friend. And it's like uh, one of Seth's drawings. And it shows him and Audrey like hanging out at the gazebo and watching the sunrise or whatever. Uh, the the woman writing the letter also, just in case you weren't getting it. And just in case it was a little too maybe obscure for you. She's like, I don't even think maybe they're ghosts. I think maybe they're uh, like, it's like there's some sort of like parallel reality that's like, being uh uh that's like bleeding through to this one it's just just a thought that i'm having here on my honeymoon (laughs) uh but the implication is that like seth has somehow like made a little pocket dimension for himself and audrey well there are other worlds than these michael yeah that's true And like the same thing that happened to that little kid you know he died and now Mm -hmm. lives in a different world yeah that's happening to them except they're ghosts for some reason yep best not to think about it too hard this is 1986. The letter is dated 1986. So it like is in the past of the story that we were just reading. And 1986 is a weird year. Just hold that in mind because it's going to be uh, uh, a little detail that may pay off in, in the next book that we're going to read. It's the year before Steve got sober. Yep. Yep. Uh, Uncle Stevie's mixtape. This is the segment where we go through the songs that have been mentioned in the book that we just read and we rate them because Steve loves music and so do we. I've got the first one. The first song is Nutbush City Limits by Tina Turner. I have never heard of this song. I had I I looked it up actually immediately when I was reading because I was like, is he is is like, are we going to do more like weird Bachman parallel universe shit like this close is like, does Tina Turner actually have a song called Nutbush City Limits? She does. It's actually pretty good. Four stars. This is like a uh, like a honky tonk kind of song. And it's about her hometown, apparently. Cool. Uh, I got Leaving on a Jet Plane by Peter, Paul and Mary. Two stars. Mm -hmm. Purple Haze. Jimi Hendrix. Five stars. I just feel like I get assigned these. uh, You know, you make these lists and I just feel like I don't. I don't get to listen to Purple Haze, you know? (laughs) I write them in the order that they show up in the novels, and I alternate us based on whoever did the summary. It's interesting. interesting. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I get this is a little bit of a cheat because this this is actually not a song. You know, yeah. this is like a part of a movie. Oh, okay. But I get Al Jolson singing "Mammy," the very famous performance from the Jazz Singer, in which Al Jolson in blackface uh-huh. is singing about his so-called mammy. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a performance within the film. Okay. Weird. Uh, the the song sucks. It's terrible and uh is beloved actually, as far as I'm aware. Um, but it it's real bad. One star. I didn't know we could go down to half a star, but uh, half a star. Okay, I thought we. I thought you've gone down to half a star before. I probably have. I, I yeah. do. I do believe that we are using the review rules, which is the lowest rating given is half a star. So right. That's. That I will. Go, I will go down. I just can't. You know. Look, people. You know, my memory of this is not great. <laughs> as soon as we're done with this mixtape, this like evacuates my brain. You know what I mean? Like I. <laughs> yeah. I truly am not holding on to this at all. Uh, and uh, so yeah, half a star. Hmm. Uh, I have Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club banned by the Beatles. Two stars. Wow, really? I mean, that song is the album has some other stuff like just that that little intro song. That's all I can. That's all I remember of it. It's just like an overture to the album. It's yeah. (laughs) Sounds like a like a band falling down some stairs. Yeah. Uh, I got the Yellow Rose of Texas, which is traditional song. uh, Three stars. It's Mm -hmm. fine. Uh, Homeward Bound by Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, Yeah, sure. Three stars. I got I Am a Rock by Simon and Garfunkel, one star. I got Old Black Joe, another uh, traditional minstrel song, mm-hmm. half a star. Okay. Not uh, good. Not good. <laughs> I got a little, with a little help from my friends by the Beatles. Uh, three stars. This is like, like the definition of mid. <laughs> uh, I got the Ballad of Jesse James, another traditional song, five stars. It's, it's uh, I mean, it's traditional, so it varies a lot but there are versions of this song that i really like so um i got strawberry fields forever and i'm giving it three stars but i've got and i've got a personal reason for giving it three stars when i was in middle school uh a friend burned me a cd of beatles songs okay and they put strawberry fields forever on it twice on accident (laughs) and so that meant i spent many years you know of, of using the cd of listening to these like Beatles songs of uh, having to hear it twice in the second time I was going, uh, and like skipping, you know? So that's probably deducting a star just because okay. my, my bad vibes memories. Of Strawberry Fields forever. <laughs> I so thought, I thought the, the three stars was going to come out overly positive because for some reason you had it on a CD twice. Nope. <laughs> it's like, I would have liked this song less if it were only on the CD once, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nope. Uh, Opposite. Well, well, there we go. That's uh, this month's episode. Uh, remember that we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash range touch, and you can support us there and get access to all sorts of bonus content. Right now we are working through uh, sort of pinch hit bonus episodes that are not films. In the past, it has been largely films, and we've done one for every mainline episode. Ex- no, actually, we're, we're like... In minus one. We always have like in minus one bonus episodes. But anyway, that's to say it's a lot of stuff. If you want to listen to things that is us talking about Stephen King. Uh, Last month, we had a discussion with uh, horror author Alison Rumford about the work of another horror author named Robert Aikman and also talked about Alison's work some. This month, as already discussed, we will be having a long uh, 
question and answer session where people wrote in questions to us. We do these once a year, and then we just answer them all. If you want to send us questions, they will obviously not be on the bonus ode that you can find on the uh, bonus ode feed right now. But if you want to ask us a question for the future, uh, you can just send those to the question sewer at gmail.com. That's the email address that we, we use for those. Uh, so, uh, that's the sort of exciting stuff that you get access to via Patreon, and that really helps us out. Uh, it lets us set aside the time to do research for me to, like, dig through the archives and find what, it, uh, reviews and interviews that I can. Uh, and the other things that you can do to help out, uh, is tell people about this show. Let your friends know. We only spread by word of mouth. We have no advertising. So every, all growth that we have had has been people saying, hey, this show is cool and you should listen to it. And you can be a part of that movement, part of the Just King Things movement. You can also shout your praises to the internet by leaving us reviews on your podcast platform of choice. But if you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and it is uh, also funny, then there is a chance that Cameron will read it on air. That's right. Have I read Harumph before? I don't think so. This is from Hip Whip Girl. Harumph. Alarmed to discover that there are, in fact, occasional non-King things mentioned, discussed, and even elaborated upon at length. Five-star review, begrudgingly. <laughs> there you go. Uh, leave us those reviews. We will read them on air. Uh, thank you so much for listening and supporting us, and however you do that. Next month, we will be back in the saddle, so to speak. For real. Like, the Western, oh, the Western yeah. train does not stop from being a thing. Uh, next month, we will be reading The Dark Tower 4, Wizard and Glass from 1997. And I don't know what we'll do for a bonus episode, because this is what I mean when like, I talk about how this strike is really... I have put off specifically watching this movie because I have heard such terrible things about it. We're not going to watch The Dark Tower movie. I'm, I'm still being denied it. So uh, get to the tables. That's right. AMPTP, make a deal. Make a deal. Like, I need... <laughs> I need to have my ethical qualms about consuming this content uh, to be resolved. That's right. Uh, but yeah, we, we don't really know at the moment what we'll be doing next month. We'll we'll let you know on Twitter, the various social medias. Um, and if, I, some, if we decide by the time that this episode posts, then I will probably cut in here and let you know. Okay. Uh, Michael here in the edit to let you know that since this was recorded, Cameron and I decided that next month's bonus episode is going to cover the first volume of Marvel Comics mid-2000s adaptation of Stephen King's great mythological cycle. That's right, we will be reading The Dark Tower Beginnings, uh, which is, as I said, a comics adaptation of uh, parts of Wizard and Glass and parts of uh, some other uh, Dark Tower stories, as well as apparently a whole bunch of filling in the blanks on some broader lore questions that are dubiously canonical. So I'm really interested in seeing how all of this comes together. Uh, and I hope you are too. If you are not a supporter already, head on over to patreon.com slash range touch. And next month, you'll be able to hear us talk about, say it again, the Dark Tower beginnings. So we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out year to year, month to month. We just keep soldiering on. And why are we doing it, Cameron? We do it for Steve. 
Oh, good. I thought you were going to say the Chef Boyardee and hamburger. No, no, excuse me.